0: Exposure. Okay. I
1: have a third one now. Jesus. Okay. I don't know. All these people I really know. You know what? Basically, my exposure to human beings is like here. That's about it. Yeah.
2: That and my family. That's about it for me too.
3: These are all
1: actually work-related
0: things, but just bad luck. Bad
3: luck.
0: Okay, we're ready to go
1: to work on a Monday. Uh, Jay, we saw your update. Would you care to take a quick rundown through
2: it? Yeah, just a, a couple things. Um, the best news is that the building permit was issued Friday for the HHS building um we, we didn't uh, have to twist any arms um i would just say that todd carr left immediately for a long weekend or a weekend in the desert after uh, issuing the permit i'm right. so, uh, not right. sure right. that was because of arm twisting but um everything's issued fees are paid to this, uh, to the city actually i was fairly pleased at the tap fees i thought they came up with pretty fair analysis when it the charges mm-hmm. with tap fees um, you
3: have the, to pay. Tap, please, if there's
2: an existing topic. Yeah, that's a good question, Beth. So it's a ratio of the taps, which were in place before, versus uh, okay. use. Got it. Um, and I thought they used a pretty good formula. EQRs? I mean, yeah, it's EQRs, yeah. Um, but it's a what was existing versus what's being built. Yeah. Um, so that's all in place. Uh, today at noon and one for staff and um, elected officials as you qualify for. Benefits from the county is the open enrollment um, kind of update on. You guys have been involved, knowing what we're offering next year, but we're trying to get that out to the uh, balance of the employees uh, today at noon and one, and then those will be YouTube so that employees can watch them on too. But this is the open enrollment, so kind of a, a mad rush, particularly with Thursday being Veterans Day and the offices being closed. So, um, trying to get that that moving. Um, Roberta will be giving you an update um, later, but the vaccination clinics are um, planned for the uh, 12th and 13th for those between 5 and 12. So uh, that's kind of the next, using Roberta's term, the last push of the toothpaste out of the tube. I think <laughs> is the analogy she used, which I keep, think, I keep thinking every morning when I brush my teeth. They, um, I think I reverted that, but that's kind of the last, I think, big push. Um, we will. I've coordinated with the Sheriff's Department for some assistance on traffic control at the uh, steamboat. What uh, we expect is a pretty good turnout. Um, on Friday, our office will be a little, a little um, slight on the uh, staffing. Uh, Jeremy's going to be uh, covering that. I have to be Denver on a family issue, and Jennifer's out of town, and Kendra's at training. Um, so a little little on the office on Friday. Um, public works director, we have, um, five solid candidates this time around. Um, one of them who's from the East coast will be in, actually is in Colorado this week. So we're going to try to touch base with him on Wednesday afternoon. Um, we'd love to have a commissioner available. It's going to be kind of a short interview format, not the full process because it's out of, out of sequence, but we'd like to meet him on, on YAs, so, uh, in the area, so um, if one of you are available, exact time yet will be uh, be Wednesday afternoon. Um, but as I said, we have a pretty good pool there. What's um, What's well, inside that right now? I, I, don't,
1: I mean, I'm available, but as I expressed earlier, I would just remain unconvinced of my usefulness in that right. setting. Well, so, if you're, if you're I mean, not willing, willing to do it.
4: If you're going to scare candidates off at Raffa <laughs> in the I process. Mean,
1: like, yeah, what do you do anyway? <laughs> I, feel, I, I mean, I, you know how I can be sometimes with some very direct questions. And it is possible that I say, yeah, but if these people don't want to work with you, then they probably-
2: Exactly, this is the time for them to understand that. Well, but I think that that PIL
5: position is a little bit
1: different than how yeah. it yeah. works. I mean, I, I mean, if you're available, I, I can be available. Right, that's the best solution. If, otherwise, I'm happy to sit in on it as well if you could. But, but you
2: know, that, it's a pretty important position. I'll coordinate that with Commissioner then okay, for Wednesday right. afternoon. Um, and talking about Commissioner um, schedules, we have the kind of solar training that the Sustainable Council is hosting on the 18th. It's here. I believe it starts at four or four thirty, uh, the eighteenth. Um, she and I are gone. Guns. So, Commissioner Redman, <laughs> can I draft <laughs> you? I
0: yeah. Hold oh, on a second. The
2: eighteenth. The eighteenth.
5: That's not
2: the time. Uh, it'd be like four or four thirty. It's just to do a little introduction. Um, um, it's the day before we do the ribbon cutting at the airport. And So mm-hmm. McKinstry's here, and they're trying to host a training um, at large solar projects to work. I, I'll be coming out of meeting at four, so I'd be available after four. Hey, you're getting drafted twice today. <laughs> you know what? I'm the new guy. Um, <laughs> Step up to the point. Well, I think I'm newer actually. But, yeah. Um, yeah, which two of us are gonna be at this meeting? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so that's uh, that's really all I have for you this morning. Most of the last week has been dealing with hiring and personnel issues, benefits and stuff, which. Uh, on the recent executive session, and then also um, on kind of the benefit side of things, what we're trying to tie down. Uh, you'll be meeting tomorrow with the consultant from Employers Council on the methodologies being used for the compensation uh, studies. So, that should, we uh, met with the um, Employee Comp Committee and went over those methodologies last week. Great. So,
0: We're
1: all just here. What's going on? See, we're busily studying statistics. I'm reading
3: the color. Yeah, I was looking at Colorado's, um what do they call that? The School of Public Health puts up their um, modeling report every
0: week. I don't know. I was
3: just like, I don't know what the heck's going on in Colorado. I'm very
6: interested. Pretty
3: amazing. Mountains,
2: what Mountain the west?
3: Yeah, nobody seems to know specifically why though.
2: Different from the entire is Well, you know, I've, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here real quick because yeah. I got to go to that door. Oh, right. um, but I wanted to, to fill you guys in on the pretrial services. We had a meeting last week. Um, I've been rattling uh, some people's cages. I was um, very happy that Commissioner Chimino did join the group this week. Um, And I have a phone call Wednesday morning with the AG's office to talk about funding this program. When I met with AG Weiser down at Club 20 um, in Grand Junction, he said to the group that this should not come out of our budgets, that this should come through his office. And so I'm going to have a meeting with the uh, Assistant Attorney General for Intergovernment Affairs to discuss funding for this project, um, which I think will probably be a big relief to the But at that's moving forward. I've been disappointed um, and express that to uh, Matt Carson and George O'Hara that the sheriffs have all been invited to the table, and none of them have been there. Mm-hmm. and. You know, this is a program that's really going to affect them and their operations. Um I'm gonna I wonder if it's not um, almost a message in a way. but an
1: opportunity to
2: uh, ask the show tomorrow about this here. I will do that. Um had a little conversation with Eric in legal saying, you know, expressing my concerns um and Uh, my interest in reaching out to Lieutenant Boyle directly, And, you know, what my concern was kind of sidestepping the sheriff. He said that I probably shouldn't have any concern with that to move forward. Um, I did send Lieutenant Boyle an email, um, and I just got a reply from him this morning um, saying that he is out of town, but he greatly appreciates the opportunity and would like to be involved in the discussion, which I feel for us as a we need everybody at the table. So maybe uh, not only for the benefit of the public, but for my, my benefit.
1: Help me understand what is what we're trying to accomplish here with this pretrial services initiative.
2: Basically there is a, a concern across government that cash bail is inequitable, you, you know, depending on your financial position in in the community. If you're a property owner, you've got certain things that you're going to be released on OR. So what they're trying to do is one, um, make the system equitable, but at the same time, make sure we protect the population because that's a huge concern of mine that you could release somebody in the morning and they could have committed another crime by that afternoon. So, um, you know, we're looking at monitoring, supervision, things like that. But it's a difficult situation because these people are considered innocent until proven guilty. So um, there's concern from um, the public defender's office that we're taking away people's rights. So it, it is a bit of a mm-hmm. tight walk road. Um My hope was that it's, if we can pull this program off, that it may be a cost saving for the county, that you know, we're not. many have the manpower and housing these people, and at the same time, hopefully, they will be out working and producing in our society. Um, I think no. all of this remains. No, thank you for that.
1: I didn't really have that understanding. I appreciate that.
3: A couple of years ago, when I went to. Um- the WIR conference, I went to a um, session about child services and Nagel has put out some kind of information. You know, they do those things that are like they said within the different comments all over my shelf to see if I can find it might like, be interesting to look at. I remember it, I was really impressed with it. Um I just, I think I didn't share it with the sheriff at that time, but um I don't
0: know that we've done anything with
2: it. Well, we got- three counties in Colorado that are, are doing this right now. Mesa, Larimer, and Denver. Um, both Larimer and Mesa came and presented and the programs are vastly different. So, you know, it, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of work still to be done and, and some directions to be um, taken, but it's hard to do without all the players at the table. I feel a little bit like a cowboy just trying to round everybody up and get them. <laughs> well, good
1: luck. Thank you. Speaking of cowboys, I saw the leadership at Western Interstate.
7: Oh, HR. yeah, look at that uh,
1: And yeah, I, actually, I've gotten to know this guy a bit because he's, he's, I think he was a commissioner before I was elected, um, Greg Chilcott. But, uh, yeah, it seems to be a pretty representative group of uh, cowboys
3: on the Western Interstate State region. participate. No, that's the board of directors, not on the board of directors. Um, I sat in on a couple of their meetings, but I mostly went to the RAC um, oh, conversation, yeah. which was a little less extreme. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, you know who's really interested in doing that is
1: Kathy Chandler. And she's been happy. I had a new leadership role in the Western University.
3: Yeah. She would be like, a huge champion. Yeah. Well, she ran for it a couple years ago and she said she only lost by one or two votes oh, don't know. Yeah, but she needs, you know, you, you vote by state. So she has to get the right states on board. Would you
1: have else?
2: No, I think that's good for me. I don't want to get anything else because I'm gonna be getting it. Don't out be late to that. <laughs> exactly. We're kind of
3: <laughs> <laughs> um I have a couple of things. I um we have the kickoff for the child care feasibility study this week. And Jay is Jay's participating right Yeah. Um I do we know who's representative from the city. Is it it's I assume Winnie.
2: I thought it was Winnie,
0: yeah not I
3: should just I, would you be willing to just check in with Gary and make sure he wants Winnie to you to represent them going forward. Just since you're there, I think it would just be good to bring him back in the loop and make sure that's because it was one thing when she was like writing the grant, but I just think we want to confirm that okay. she wants to be there representing the city. Um, but yeah, that should be exciting stuff. The epic is. There's nothing of note from the ad hoc meeting. It's a lot of conversation about bylaws and process and procedure, I think.
1: Thank you for doing that. It's tedious work.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's good. Um, the I think the most important thing is that I think there was kind of, this will come back to the whole membership, so we'll probably talk about it more at the retreat, but um, there was conversation about Transitioning to a C4 kind of an organization um, and setting a timeline on that. Um, is
1: it, I, I, I'm sorry, I was distracted for a moment. A C4. No, yeah uh, is Boulder still handling? Right, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah.
3: And just, you know, the challenges with that, but also just having a little bit, especially now having like an executive director position that it might make a lot more sense instead of him of, you know, working for upon every sum. Yeah. Is he an employee of Boulder? No, he's an employee of groups. Oh, And oh, right, uh, right. And, and I think I think mean, you know, just there's a lot of good reasons to think about doing that. And uh, I think the movement within that group was to say, why don't we recommend that we have a goal of whatever, it, whether it's January 2023 or whatever makes sense, and then work backwards from there about what's going to need to happen to do that. But that it's an important thing to have it at some point here, and probably not too far in
1: the future. I mean, it's apparent that the organization is going to survive at this point, so. <laughs> yeah, Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: and yeah, I mean, nothing particularly okay. noteworthy, but um, some good conversations for sure about how we do business and that sort of thing. Um, I was wondering about. Uh, Have we gotten any county-level communication about the infrastructure bill? I saw NACO sent out something, but it seems like we probably should identify someone to kind of be a point person to take a look at what's in there and just track the information. And, you know, I saw there's, you know, the White House does these intergovernmental things and they have some briefings on it. I don't know who wants to kind of do that, but we should probably...
2: I'll I'll check with Dan. He's been tracking...
3: Most of the federal legislation is Right. I don't training, think so. there's
0: county money in
3: infrastructure, though, but it's something that when we're talking about water, right? We're talking about transportation infrastructure right. and all these things. It's something we should keep an eye on.
2: 65 billion in the water. Well, also, so that we don't end
1: up uh, providing any of our ARPA funds to someone that could have gotten somewhere right. else. Yes.
3: Exactly. Um,
1: yeah. It's a, it is why we hired a parallel we do all this stuff kind of down the line right
8: so someone just needs to
1: track that and um maybe you know going to these
3: meetings and reading the stuff and whatever um so we can make sure to those um, spots. and then i just wanted to let you know and i'm still not sure how we want to do this but um there was child care stabilization money. You guys remember I was talking about that a lot like $268 million that came to the state. Um, so it's all been kind of good Everyone who's licensed gets a monthly payment based on the number of spots they have. And licensed spots not in current enrollment, which I think is a little weird because there's sort of a perverse incentive to yes. under yes. right? To yes. get more yes. money per spot, um, but I, that, it makes sense because that's the information the state has on file. Um, however, the state is requiring that 50% of that funding be used to offset tuition for families, which sounds very nice, um, but we've heard from at least one provider That they're actually going to struggle to spend it because we have such solid other tuition assistance programs, and they could. They might also have some folks that can afford to pay as well. Right, Mm -hmm. and so you know, if they could use it for other things, they would have trouble spending it. But that they're going to maybe have a a lot of issues with that. So um, I've drafted a letter to well i haven't decided who to get probably to the office of early childhood who created that plan but probably ceasing our representative i'm just saying that we would request local flexibility with these dollars rather than the requirement for 50 percent to go to tuition and kind of illustrating what we've done locally with tuition assistance and making the case that we really feel like we are serving
5: the need that exists,
3: and to the extent that we're not, it's because there's no place for their kids to go, not because they can't afford the tuition. Um, and so just see if that, I don't know if that'll go anywhere or not, but um, you might remember that I mentioned it to Dylan when he was here, Dylan Roberts. Um, but I'm not sure quite who the signatories on that letter are yet, if it just comes with Impressions, if the commissioner should write something, um, know since tuition assistance has been funded through hrc i thought maybe the city might want to sign on um
1: but any chance that those funds could be transferred from one center to another i have no
3: idea i have no idea i mean it's just a it's an I get why they said that, but I it's just, it's frustrating because we do, I mean, we are currently providing tuition assistance up to 400% of the federal salary level between CCAP and our local dollars. And we're limiting a family contribution to 10% of their income. And so there may be families that are not eligible for CCAP. That would be basically the only families that you would be able to serve. In addition to that, unless you're just Reducing their contribution even further, and it just seems hard for me to believe that that is the highest priority here, given the needs that we see.
1: Was there any other funding dedicated
0: to the early childhood councils? Yes, there in, was. in a manner that the early childhood councils
1: could uh, disperse some of that money,
0: mm-hmm. or is I
1: it just think, to support their? Operations? I think no. I think it's
3: specific. I don't remember
1: what it was exactly. <laughs> there were few. There were. That slideshow I sent you
3: guys. There was a PowerPoint, and I've looked through it probably five times. I still couldn't tell you. I mean, I I I can figure it out, but it's just there's a lot of different buckets of money, and so sorting through like what is entitlement versus what is grant. You know, you have to apply for a grant. You know, what goes directly to the centers, what goes to the childhood councils. I still sort of trying. Yeah, out. I don't know all
1: that. Are these uh... Stabilization dollars sustainable, or are they just a one shot? They're of A couple of years. Ago. Yeah. Yep. Stabilization. Right? Yep. Exactly. The word.
3: But, uh, but you know, my argument is that what our child care system needs in order to be stabilized is workforce retention mm-hmm. more so than tuition assistance. Right. Not because tuition assistance isn't needed, but because we're meeting that needle. That's just interesting. You know, we you know at least when
1: I was first commissioner that was the whole conversation right. making that for oh, really families and then we transitioned into well we don't have enough space I mean, and now we've transitioned into the uh, workforce issue
3: it's almost like you should be able to focus on more than one issue at the same True. time <laughs> <laughs> but to be able to do that yeah well
1: that's all I have on my list a lot of things um, I'm gonna take the opportunity. So I back um HHS building. Uh actually i have been curious, Jay. You were joined us last Wednesday for the whole meeting. Um what was your take on uh, the group and the process on uh, that? Because I've been kind of in it for so long. It's I'm actually glad to have fresh eyes coming into the room.
2: You know, it seemed that the project team was working well together and the contractor design group and owner groups seem to be communicating well or at least talking the same language which from my experience is usually the most critical part yeah. so since we're kind of beyond the uh, gmp um point and moving forward to it it seemed like everyone was working together on things and um owner's rep was right on so you know i think it's a great great team from my perspective. Yeah,
1: I mean that's that okay. was my that's been my observation, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that meeting on Wednesday was a pretty good example. But it's also that uh, just the regular check-in communication. You know, having these meetings on a weekly basis. I don't care if the meeting's only ten minutes long. I think we have the meeting right. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty good about things right now. too. Yeah. But yeah, it's phase one, wild enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: But I also think with what's going on on the uh, supply chain and having to get things pre-ordered, that it's really good to have weekly meetings at this point because it's it's a little different error in construction than what maybe what we're used to in the past, where you pass it off order and move ahead. And I mean, there's going to have to be decisions made on all kinds of issues as supply chain stuff uh, continues to rear its ugly head.
1: Um. You get, yeah, you weren't here. You didn't miss that much on the uh, in-stream flow presentation. I'm just curious. I mean, I guess it was nice to know. It was an interesting conversation. To the extent that we really needed to know, I just the newspaper wrote about it. Though I saw, huh?
3: I think the newspaper wrote about it. They did. I mean, it's it's of interest to people. But how in-stream flows really affect
1: or agricultural water supplies seems to be really marginal. It seems mm-hmm. like it's just kind of declaring something that's de facto in existence right now it was why. Like, I think uh, Nicole Seltzer's presentation on the integrated water management plan was probably of a more important to us, but even uh, at that, but, you know, we don't own water rights. We don't own, I'm supposed to the extent we own, uh, well. right. yeah, a water well with yeah. uh, Peavey. That, that that part of it is of interest. To us. And what the future development patterns of the county, uh, how that will, those will be impacted by water. And I think we have, as I was explaining to Jay, we have friends in high places in the water world between. We call Jackie Brown and Kelly Heaney Romero. I mean, it's not as so we don't have people we can call them. Right. And uh, actually, I did talk to Jackie a bit about uh, the seat on the, the Apple White Green Roundtable. There's no reason to make a change. Doug's term goes for another two years. Anybody else that wants to apply for the position Not so much on a high level policy. She also did offer to come anytime with the monitor. She would make it once a year, twice a year, and give us a report on the work of the, uh, the Colorado water conservation board.
0: And did you
3: see Jen Bach Jen was appointed, I think, the water control Commission board? It
1: was Jen Bach. Yeah, I've, I've just been uh, cautious is the word that I try to use in these conversations, and, uh, and we'll see. We've got a consultant, which is a good thing. Let's gather the data. Let's talk about what the true needs are out there, and what some of the potential paths forward. I'm uh, just hesitant about jumping into both feet into a, an RTA and well, aren't we jumping it? into an RTA feasibility study? Well, we're jumping into a feasibility study, that's right. right fine. Yeah. But I, I, I worry that the group has already, you know, already right. made up their mind that that's what we're going to do. And then the consultants report is going to support that. We'll see. So um, At least we have that in place. The, I, don't, I don't, I might have mentioned that to you. When you're, when you're well, Tour. Jay, this was pretty interesting talking to uh, Mark Walker. He's the CEO of the resort group. Uh, and uh, the, two of the things that we were talking about in the transportation group was the city of Zemo is still really struggling to hire drivers. Mm-hmm. Jonathan asserts that they're only at this point, they're only going to have 60% workforce for driving the buses, and there will be constraints on service. And then layered on top of that, Auger. His words for the upcoming ski year and ski boat was it's going to be absolutely bonkers that his reservations are way beyond anything they've ever seen before. We know we have the increased flights coming in. It's going to be challenging across the board between bus service, you know, and obviously serving the charts to come to town. We'll see see how we adapt.
2: Yeah, I, I actually had a discussion with Gary Suter on that last week. And this city, depending on how staffing comes together, they're they're contemplating a PR campaign with, you know, hey folks, you know, when you're when you're in town, take a step back. Think it might be a little longer at a restaurant, not as frequent bus service. Kind of like relax, chill, enjoy your vacation, but uh, you know, where that there's going to be some service limitations. So we'll see if they have to launch that or not.
1: Um, I went to the public last meeting on Friday. It was a pretty cut and dry in terms of approving the budget. They did move in to a discussion, a little bit of a conceptual discussion, discussion of how Colorado should be Represented at the national level, and is it our goal to uh, provide a unified voice, or is it reasonable that we would bring different voices at the national level? That was an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. It seems like the members, the current members of the Public Land Stewardship Committee, have found a way to kind of trust each other, you know, while they're disagreeing. And then, uh, and then John Sporndot made it makes interesting comments about how we, as the Colorado, the the members of that committee, how are we really going to engage on big picture items like 30 by 30? And is there a place that we could find consensus, um, say something big like 30 by 30? Because he's got all the experience that if if you're you know, again, if you're not at the table as an effective voice, federal government's going to do something that probably nobody's going to like. So, that was an interesting conversation. I think uh, there are uh, me- there are some good members on that committee now. now. Mm-hmm. They're probably better at that work than I am because I tend to be get a little bit angry about some of the stuff that goes off the rails. Like, uh, I'm hopeful. It's good that we aren't paying the dues now so that we have an opportunity to, to make sure that we vote in the uh, best to be on the committee. So it's, it's kind of in a good place,
0: right a calm place right now. That's all that I have.
1: So we're back at 1130.
0: Is it 11 30? Yep. I am we're on the cabinet. Okay, let's recess till 11.30. All right. We have uh, Michael Woodbridge from the United
1: States Forest Service, our district ranger. Thank you. I know you've made a commitment to come in and uh, just keep us updated on your activities and what's going on in the world
4: of Forest Service. So the floor is yours, Michael. Well, thank you. Well, good morning, uh, Commissioner Redmond and Corrigan. Corgan. Good to see you guys again. Yeah, we, we talked about at least quarterly updates. So uh, I know talking to you guys, you've been busy with, I think, budget or other things recently. So glad you're to fit me into today's meeting. And it's good to be back and uh, provide some updates and answer questions. Have you met Jay aren't you? I have not. Hi, good
1: to meet you. Me too. Michael, to what great. Jay's our uh, new. Well, he's been
2: around for a week. We have to stop calling him new. He's our almost a month and a I think days. I'm on week I eight, eight now. <laughs> week eight. So yeah. And Michael's been district
4: ranger here since when. Officially since mid March. Uh, okay. but you know, the first two weeks doing it from California was quite uh, as same as actually being in town. So so I kind of consider April really what I the ground and started figuring things out, and I think I think I talked to you guys well, probably in June uh, last time, so I'm still pretty fresh, still kind of feeling my way around and, and uh, getting getting to lay the land here. But I, I you know, made it a priority to, to meet each of you, and, and uh, that was great to to you know make those uh, relationships get this started right off the bat. course which is important to me. And that really helps Forest Service and and the county work well together. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I had a few things I wanted to mention to you guys, just kind of some updates on some things. And then, of course, whatever questions you have for me. So um, it's been a busy summer. Uh, You know, obviously, learning a job is busy, but just busy for the Forest Service in the summertime. That's our busiest time of the year. The most people in the woods uh, so we can do a lot of our field work and our activities out in the out in the forest um when there's no snow so um one thing that really made it a busy summer was on july 9th we had the morgan creek fire start and that was a lightning-caused fire um just south of Seedhouse road kind of not too far off from henman uh, road area and um that ended up at about 7,500 acres, and we got—I'd say—you know—lucky, but it's it's partly how we managed it, but also partly luck. Obviously, if the wind, especially in that first day, the first 24 hours, when the fire really really ran—you know—a few hundred acres in the first few hours and the first 24 hours, I don't remember if it was a thousand acres or 500 acres, but it was we really running gun at first. And if the wind had gone the other way, we would have we would have had a, a probably less um, less ideal experience with that. So thankfully the wind was pushing it towards the wilderness away from values at risk and we were managing it for those values at risk. So um, we, we also value our firefighters and we wanna make sure that they're not being put in harm's way unnecessarily. So we really focused their, their exposure and exposure of our, our resources on the west side and the south side to, uh, to keep that fire from heading towards Branches and homes and other other resources, um, and we were successful with that. Uh, we we did not actively um, go in go in and directly attack the fire on the east side because it was going into the wilderness, burning through Deadfall, um, not not the kind of place you want to put your firefighters unless you have to. Um, so with the uh, the rain that we got this fall, we've had a pretty decent fall I think as far as precipitation so far. Um, we can say now that that's a uh, 100% contained. We're not calling the fire out because there's probably something going around in there uh, for now, but it's contained. It's not going anywhere. Like I said, about a little over 7,500 acres, I believe, is the official. How much? Over a little over 7,500 acres. Um, and then uh, a few other things we have happening, uh, or that we've done, I should say, since I last talked with you. A few things with the ski resort. Um, we, uh, we being the Forest Service, because my boss, the Forest Advisor, signs the decisions for the free ski resort. Um, he signed the environmental assessment to the ski resort, which uh, allows for improvements at steamboat um, over in the Pioneer Ridge area and some changes with the lifts and the gondolas. You guys probably know all about all those changes. And those are things that, that were on Forest Service land that we worked with them on as well. Uh, so, they're full steam ahead on uh, on those uh, improvements, and uh, also uh, at the ski resort. But a little bit different is they had some blowdown over there last fall, uh, right before winter set in. And so we worked with them on uh, a decision to allow for managing of that deadfall. I say managing because some of it's getting taken out, some of it's just getting uh, you know chipped up on site uh, but we're working, we're working with them to uh, make it a safe place for people to be uh, on the resort so you don't have a bunch of snags that could fall and also to manage the fuels out there and also to prevent uh, things like spruce beetle because a lot of it spruce that came down and if you let green spruce stay on the ground uh, that's often the haven for spruce beetles to get into and then you've got a bigger problem. So uh, really happy that, that that's uh, ha- happened and been happening. We, we worked with the ski resort and also ski resort and hired Colorado State Forest Service to, to do a lot of that project planning. So um, good example of just great relationships all around with, with us and the Colorado State Forest Service and ski resort. Also, uh, I signed the North Route Fuels decision, which allows us to do work in north route. So kind of all around the the edges of private land up around Steamboat Lake in that that neck of the woods. So uh, a lot of dead trees across the forest, we have to prioritize where we can actually make an impact. And certainly those uh, private land boundaries uh, are, are one of those important places where For ranchers uh, that live around there and other landowners, they're clearing the dead trees off their property because they come down road fences uh, and uh, and, and cause issues for them. So we're uh, we're doing what we can on our side of the fence, so to speak. So that project is also a partnership project. It's a good neighbor authority, uh, which is something that allows us to work with the state. So we are working with the Colorado State Forest Service. On that project that will be implemented next summer uh, in 22. And when the basically when the weather clears and the soils and conditions are right, we can get in there and actually do the work. Um, And like I said, Colorado State Forest Service will be doing the implementation.
2: We have a meeting with them this
4: week to actually talk about
2: what the implementation is going to look like. Would Carolina be the representative that you work with here?
4: We work with Carolina and Enriquez and also uh, with uh, John as well. We've been talking to both of them quite a bit about this project uh, for quite a while now, before I had caught here too, of course, but uh, happy to happy to be able to say that 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 decision's been signed and that we're ready for implementation.
2: May I ask how was it received by the ranchers when you go up there to start work? Are they generally receptive? Uh, There's a lot of support. Uh, in North
4: route with the, the landowners around there and the fire district as well. I've received letters, I think you guys have as well, from the uh, Northrout fire fire district, uh, you know, very, being very supportive of this project and saying, hey, we just, it's a very important project to us, and we want to see it get done. And I wasn't here when they had public meetings, when we first were planning the project, but uh, my understanding is that those landowners, and ranchers, were very supportive and really want to see this project happen. If anything, they probably just want to see it happen sooner.
2: I understand. Is there any effort being made between the Forest Service and I sit on the Wildland uh, Mitigation Council? Um, sounds like that would be a perfect time to partner. You know, as you're doing the one side of the fence, you know, maybe we could be there on the other side. I I don't know, I was talking to Carolina about that, but that seems like that could be a win. Yeah, you know, for the
4: Forest Service, uh, you know, there's some authorities that allow us to do things across boundaries, so so there's ways to do that. But Colorado State Forest Service is really uh, the ones that are best positioned to to be doing that work on private lands. And so having this good neighbor authority where we could work with them, they've already been doing a lot of work on private lands, but landowners and, and Colorado State Forest Service. I was up there this summer on a tour of some of the work that's been done on private lands up there uh, and it looks really great. And so they've already made a lot of progress. So yeah, this is a great way for us to, to, to meet them with uh, that same effort on our side of it.
1: So while we're interrupting you and know, putting you on hold, for what you were going to tell us about a I'm curious about this. We had, a, we had a public lands meeting on Friday and one of the things that came up, Hillary brought it up, that there's a there's a lot of are these new dollars or just existing dollars that are uh, through the USDA for wildfire mitigation
0: and then uh, and then she also went on to talk about those communities that have a really well defined uh, wildfire plan and a and and uh, what is it we have the Rapp County
1: Wildland Fire Council.
2: Is that what that's called? Well, I don't know if that's exactly, but that's the gist of it. Okay. Uh, So just like so much of what we do,
1: I mean, if there's money out there that we can bring into the county to address issues, um, it seems like we do have a uh, well-defined wildfire plan. Mm -hmm. We've got got the council in place. Uh, But the last thing that Hillary brought up, which she's been noticing, is in these various communities, they don't have the capacity to uh, chase down the grant applications. So who should we be talking to? Should
4: we be talking to USDA? Well, I mean, I think there, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, there. There are a lot of different programs out there where, where there's money. Uh, USDA is one of them. And, uh, and, and there is some, some stuff coming out of Washington about more money for wildland fire and also fuels reduction. So we don't have those fires in the first place. So, uh, you know, some of those things are, are specifically geared towards non-federal entities. Um, and so, you know, depending on what the opportunity is there are only certain types of entities can apply for those. To me, I think the, the, the bottom line the most important thing we can be doing is working together So that we can take advantage of those opportunities. So if there's something that's open to local governments, route counties set up to be able to take advantage of that. If there's something that our agency can go after internal grants or something, we can do that. Or if there's state or nonprofit opportunities, you know, if we're all talking and coordinating. And keep an eye out on those opportunities, then we can look at who's the right entity to, to apply for that and how we work together. So we're doing things cross boundary. So just, um, one, I guess, comment, and then
3: well, I guess that was sort of comments and then a question. Um, So this was a hot topic of conversation at WIR was the, I was at a Western interstate region conference, which is part of the National Association of counties and lots of discussion about this funding. So I don't know exactly what it is, but there was a lot of, you know, new pots of money, I think for wildfire. um, And for fuel reduction, like we're talking about Um, one thing just. uh, that our wildfire protection plan.
7: We don't actually have a plan yet, do we? We're in the process right. of doing oh, that
3: right yeah. now. Yeah, right. that's the community. Well, wild the community wildfire, wildfire, wildfire protection, protection plan. plan. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Okay, so probably having that would get us to what you're
2: talking about, Tim. Right. Um, and that will also define the wood. So, right. What is the timeline and all that? They're they're bringing on consultants now. Um, you know, between the money that we pitched in. Um, um, and then they got a grant for forty thousand to match it. That they're looking at bringing on a full time director. So we're working on it. Um, yes, sir.
3: So one of the items of discussion at WIR was about um, that often a lot of these communities can't meet the acreage thresholds. You know, they're not competitive for these dollars because they're not um, sort of mitigating on a large enough scale acreage wise. And there was a lot of discussion about um, trying to have some conversation about economic impacts and, and kind of maybe having some different criteria for those dollars besides just acreage. And I guess I'm not familiar enough with what the issues are here. And I'd be curious if you would think that those acreage, if you're familiar with those acreage thresholds, if those are an issue kind of within our forests in terms of mitigation work.
4: I, I'm not familiar with the specific uh, okay. acreage limitations that, that you're referring to, um, but I can tell you there's plenty of acreage out there. Um, and and <laughs> especially oh, okay. on the forest, right? <laughs> so I, I, think, I think there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, we've, we've had some conversations, we being the Forest Service, Colorado State Forest Service, um, some of our, our partner uh, partners like such as uh, permittees, that they use the forest for, for uh, cattle and sheep um, and some other locals here. We've, we had an initial meeting just only a few weeks ago uh, to kind of start, but there's, we're talking about opportunities to do landscape level work in North Route uh, with that group. And so I, I have high hopes that we can make something happen with those sorts of, of partnerships and, and, and having those diverse entities coming together. Um, I talked a little bit with um, the, Warner Water Agency folks, just preliminarily, just starting with spitball ideas, but hey, what can we do to protect the city's water um, source here, uh, you know, from, from wildfire, so um, I think there's, there's a number of opportunities where we could get the right partners together. What I see here in this community is a lot of interest, a lot of a lot of capable partners, a lot of capacity. Um, and so I think it's a matter of uh, coming together uh, with a diverse group of partners. But I, I also think a manageable size, right, of, of partners. You get too big and it gets right. too clunky and slow, but you get the right size uh, group together. Um, and we can probably we can do some really great things at a landscape level here. Uh, I, have, I have come from uh, another district with the Forest Service back in California, and we had a project that was landscape level out there. And we partnered with the county and uh, some nonprofit organizations, uh, also the water agency there and others. We had about six or seven partners in a a research uh, institute from one of the colleges out there. And we worked together on this project and it was very successful. Uh, We were treating, uh, I think, 22,000 acres and, and it was it was a great project where it wasn't the Forest Service leading it and that's what I see with these other projects too it's not hey the Forest Service is going to lead this project and you know we'll bring some partners along for the ride we we, the Forest Service and this was primarily on Forest Service land but it wasn't all lands approach we were a partner so we weren't leading the project we were a partner on the project and it was a partner-led project so the county uh, where I was actually took the lead on hiring the contractors and they implemented the work um, and all the partners uh, were tasked with hoping to find money to make that happen and i can see very similar things happening here obviously there's different funding streams uh from out there from here but i i just see a lot of i just see a lot of potential and i'm really excited to work with the county and other partners here to, to see if we can make some of those things happen side note Okay. Something to remind us
0: about. We used to have the USDA people coming in here all the time, mm-hmm. practically driving
1: us nuts with presentations. Oh yeah, about all the great programs then, they yeah,
3: had and all I
0: don't the
1: things. Was, was it usually
0: Sally or? Is yeah. it so, I
1: don't think so. I was just looking. There's an acting director for Colorado now, so maybe that's what happened. Because so, she was always at um, CCI too. Yeah, yeah, but I we to yeah, you see know, I mean, if for no other reason. Then the wildfire stuff, we are right. trying to make contact with the USDA and say hey, what's up. So,
4: sorry, we know that you just Forest Service is part of the USDA. Uh, yeah. You're not responsible for what they no, but there's a number of agencies and then yeah, when you're talking about department folks, I mean they are doing some different things from the Forest Service. So uh, we're part of it, but but there are few differences there. So I think engaging those folks is important. You know, we're doing a lot of work on the ground this summer we had a number of projects um, we had one ongoing that had to get put on hold uh, in the because it was in the Morgan Creek fire area, so we had to kind of put it on hold during the fire. And we had another one that was literally supposed to start on Monday, and the Friday before is when the fire started. That was for peak uh, timber sale. So two that were kind of affected, uh, mostly just delayed. Uh, but we had a number of projects: Big Red Park, Little Red Park, uh, you know, other areas across the district here. And, and down in Yamba, uh, that district as well, which obviously is throughout county. So we've had a number of active timber projects all this summer. And, and those are great uh, projects. And we're getting some great work done. But I will say that you know, when we do a few hundred, even a few thousand acres here and there, like that's good. But it's a drop in the bucket when you look at the issues. And so that landscape scale uh, you know, work and project uh, is is really what I think is going to move the needle the most. So that's why I say like that. I think that's really an important step, and I'd love to see us really get that, that stuff going. And that's something I'm hoping we can, you know, do more, more uh, of this winter is getting getting these folks to the same table to talk about those, those efforts. Um, let's see. Uh, we uh, we had a pretty busy rec season. It wasn't. As nuts as last summer. So last summer, a lot of it was you had in addition to people that normally are out there using the forest. had all people that you know you couldn't go to Mexico, you couldn't go to Disneyland, so they came to the forest. And so last year, of course, was just a huge increase, in unprecedented numbers. This year, we don't have you know statistical data yet, but from what I've seen and talking to my staff, uh, it was busy. Uh, it wasn't as busy as last year but I'd say it's still busier than pre-pandemic levels. So uh, yeah, still still a lot of people coming and recreating on the forest. Um, how's the, how's the uh,
1: law enforcement going now that you have actual law enforcement officers?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think you can always have more law enforcement officers, but uh, but I, I feel really good about the folks that we have out there doing the work. Um, Michael Travesis, our local guy out of Yampa, who covers this whole area. Uh, it's a big area to cover, and and he's doing a fantastic job. I mean, when I hear from people, and I I, I I get the same sense. But when I hear from people, man, he seems like he's everywhere. Like that's great. That's what you want in a long Yeah, that's what, that's been my observation. It's been amazing how much yeah. I've seen him out there, which I think is awesome. That's exactly what you want. And and you know, it's a big area, and so you can't cover it all. Um, And we have what are called forest protection officers. So they're not law enforcement officers, but they are trained, uh, you know, and they can go out and issue tickets. So they kind of help supplement that a little bit with the the minor things. Um, But obviously for anything uh, that could be a danger to people, they're not gonna be involved in that. It's gonna be a law enforcement officer issue. And what I've seen so far too, is that we've been uh, really partnering well with a county sheriff on the law enforcement side, especially with the fire that we have, there's a lot of communication there. It's not like he's writing a bunch of tickets, right? He's out there trying to inform people. Yeah, you know, you you uh, you don't want to just go out and ticket everybody every time you see something. You want to you want to assess the situation and if it's a misunderstanding or you know. You, just a little education that goes a long way. So yeah, the first step is is to kind of assess the situation. If you can educate and change people's behavior, that's great. But
5: but there's also plenty of
4: examples of people that knowingly do things and they need to be ticketed and fined so they don't do it again.
1: Plus he must be a valuable asset just in terms of monitoring what's going on out there in the
4: forest. Yeah, he's in the woods more than I am, so uh, he's he's seeing it. Uh, every day, so oftentimes, if I'm if, if I'm wondering, like, you know, what what's it been like, up, you know, well, before the fire? What was it like in Ciudad House Or, <clears throat> you know, where are we getting a lot of people? Are they following the rules? Our law enforcement
1: officer is a great person. to is that a local decision to fund that position out
4: of a local a lot budget, or does that come from on high? On high. So, uh, our law enforcement operation is stovepipe, meaning it's uh, run out of. Washington down through the region. So, our law enforcement officer doesn't report to me and he doesn't report to the forest advisor. He reports to
5: his patrol commander
4: who covers our forests and also uh, Arapahoe and Roosevelt National Forests. So, the patrol captain has a bigger area that he's in charge of. He oversees these law enforcement officers that cover our areas
5: and then he reports to the
4: region. So, you know, I I coordinate with our law enforcement officer, but I'm not giving him. Is uh, instructions. Excellent. Yeah. Sorry to keep distracting you. No, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you guys are, are curious to know about and what I'm. Well, we're not on
1: uh, I think one thing we'd like to talk about
4: uh, is the status of the property up on Hilltop and yeah. where you're at and where that process is yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I was going to bring that up as well. So uh, last week I was on a hunting trip, but the week before that. And, and previous to that, I, I was able to have some conversations with our national program manager. So he is kind of overseeing this program, if you want to call it that, that's come out of this, this law that uh, Senator Bennett sponsored uh, that went into law for through the Farm Bill uh, leasing authority. And so uh, one, one thing that him and I talked about is that this is, this is still a fairly new authority and so there hasn't been an ex- like a situation where this this authority has been exercised all the way to the area meaning it's been leased uh, by the local government and being used there's there are places like on the white River and maybe some others that are kind of like us uh, in the process and they might be even farther along but they're not they haven't gone through the whole thing so no one's actually been through this whole process and that's Certainly, one of the things is we're kind of feel it, figuring our way out as we go up um, this process to see, like, are we doing well, now, it? right? Now
1: wait a minute, Michael. I mean, you've got places out like in Breckenridge, right. Where you know, there's communities that got built.
0: I mean,
1: how much closer to completion do we get?
0: This leasing
4: authority we're talking about hasn't been completed. So, like, Dillon is one of those that's uh, kind of the, one of the furthest ahead. And they're still not that not that many steps ahead of us, honestly. They are they are further along um, in the process, but but no, so seriously, to... I'm talking about like outside of Frisco, there's whole
1: communities
4: that have been built on what was forest service land. That's a different authority, though. So there there are multiple ways to have forest, and forest service land uh, leased or transferred. Uh, and, and this authority that we've been talking about, the recent authority through the Farm Bill, is a newer one. Well, let's um, use one of the older ones where they actually got stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's certainly something I think we need to take a hard look at. And maybe, and I don't even know what it stands for, I just know the, the acronym is pronounced FISPERIA. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's quite But bad. I can't tell you, yeah, well, you know where the federal government were good at acronyms yeah. but, uh, um, that's, that's been there for a while and that has, like like you're saying, Commissioner, uh, this is uh, something that's been actually taken from start to finish. And so, yeah, I think we need to be making sure we're, we're looking at those and saying, which one's the right tool for the job? Is it is it this farm-building authority or is it this maria or one of these other things? I mean, land exchanges are also an option um, and that, you know, every 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 one of those options has its benefits and drawbacks, right? I think land exchanges take a long time, um, unfortunately. So, so I think looking at those, that's a good point, and I agree with you. Like, let's look at those other authorities, and is there something else we should be doing?
1: But I mean, I still think we're back where we were talking months ago, which is from you know about the housing authority board the urgency that the Housing Authority has towards getting something done feels like it's trying to into, you into know, federal yeah. bureaucracy. Yeah. And, and, and I think we all share, I think you share the same goal, is that that piece of property up there on Hilltop is pretty ideally suited yeah. for some kind of a housing project. And certainly, the Housing Authority believes that. I think we believe that, so we've all call restaurant, here's the goal, but it feels like the, there's just so many obstacles from getting here to there. It's frustrating.
4: I understand your frustration. I and mean, first and foremost, I mean, I'll just reiterate that, yeah, I, I, I'm i fully supportive of this effort as well.
1: Uh,
4: I'm not planning on doing any other, uh, you know, development of, of the seven or eight acres we have right in the middle of town forest service things. Um, so I would love to see us uh, be able to contribute to the affordable housing issue in this county. And so uh, I I share the same goal. And I think that actually, it's not the bureaucracy necessarily. Because in all fairness, I've only had a few meetings with the uh, Yampa Valley Housing Authority. And we've been moving, moving along slowly here. And like I said, part of it is is because I'm figuring out our process. It's a new process and how it works. But it's not even actually a bureaucracy. It's, it's We just need to sit down in the same room for a few hours and start hashing some things out, and getting some things sorted out. Because uh, I have these conversations with our national program manager and getting, getting on the list uh, for eligible sites, from what I can gather from talking with him, isn't a big hurdle. He sends in the list to Congress, and they pretty much say that sounds good. You know, unless there was really some controversial issue, uh, we wouldn't expect to hear from them. No, we don't like that. That I, that that location. On so does that request that
1: eh, made to the national program manager to put this property on that list? I've talked to him about
4: it, and I and I I can send them a written letter saying I want you to put this site on the list. Um, he, he sent in last year's list, I guess, this past summer. So, And at that time, I didn't even know there was a list. So this is part of you know, learning for me and also for our program in general. Um, but but what he told me, because I said, hey, I, I don't want to wait till next summer to get this submitted. He said, you don't need to do that. It's like, you could be doing the due diligence work now with your local partners. To get things set up to make this happen, and then when the list gets submitted to Congress, it, you'll be on there. Uh, so, so that's not a hurdle. Uh, what we need to do is get things kind of just figured out uh, with the Forest Service and the NFL Housing Authority and the City and County, and say this is this is what we want to do here. This is how we're going to do it, and then. We get we get the site on the eligibility list submitted to Congress. We get a, a letter, of first writer refusal kind of letter, uh, and this is all if we use this specific leasing authority. Right? Might be different if we're doing this career or something else. Um, but that's why I say like it's not really the bureaucracy that is holding this up. Part of it is figuring out a new a new process, but also just us sitting down and actually hashing out the details and getting it all. So we're having a housing authority meeting a regular monthly meeting on Thursday here. Okay.
0: And I'm going to be repeating a lot of what you just said here Wonderful. to yeah. uh, to the group and to the executive director. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, if that's the problem,
1: I guarantee you, I'll have Jason and Cole and myself sitting in a room with you going, OK, well, what do we need to do here? I mean, you Yeah, uh, is it a question of you needing money or other property or considerations? You're going to have to be prepared to come to the table and make it quite clear yep. exactly what
4: it is that you need from the housing authority to get this thing pushed forward. Yeah, so great. Let's let's go ahead and get that scheduled. I okay, that'll. I, I think that'll help us keep okay. moving things along and actually yeah. make some progress. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense.
2: And yeah. just in the big picture, wasn't the leasing authority put in place to allow more community benefit as opposed to previous processes were to maximize value of the assets so they could be leveraged for other projects, correct?
4: I, I can't I can't tell you for sure. I won't let answer that question. Um, yeah. And actually, I'll, and we we'll Jay into that. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah,
3: Jay,
1: Jay slipped it there. sounds
2: like yeah. so much. i looked at yeah. that a little bit. Better.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's. I think that's what I needed to hear from you today is that there is a path forward. We just need to
3: pursue it. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. think that's really exciting, and I think that's progress from you know the conversations we've had before. And I appreciate that
4: there's a lot to sift through. So thank you for your work on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know not having uh, a staff person dedicated to this issue in my office contributes to, it, but that shouldn't be anything to stop us. We can still keep. Make progress and, and it's important, it's an important thing for me, so that's why I'm willing to make the time certainly to, to have these meetings and, and see what we can do. Um, I also want to get some other folks engaged so yeah. that uh, so it's not just me or yeah. on my end here, but uh, that shouldn't be too much of an issue when we're ready to actually. Well, I think
3: we're the how however, we can make that reality. I think it's a great
0: yeah. project
3: and a great example of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a member
4: of this community, uh, you know, I, I know that affordable housing is probably the number one, or at least one of the number one issues that we're it's facing every day. It was yeah. the first issue
2: you had to deal with. Yeah,
4: I mean, I can tell you firsthand from my own experience. I mean, I'm I'm, in a sense, I'm still struggling a little bit. We do have a house, but it's not much of a house, so <laughs> and it has a few issues, but uh,
5: but yeah, so I mean, I,
4: I, I know firsthand and I know it just from being a member of this community, so. Uh, it's important to me, and I know that that property is a. Is a it, it's not a, maybe not to the you know level of Browns Ranch, but but every everything. But is that
1: a, that that is the process that you want to follow. You just,
4: yeah, somebody donate twenty three thousand, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> and then you're done. I mean, I can simplify it. <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs> that's my that's my number one
1: uh, process uh, goal as well. All right, we been you up enough um, on that. Uh we
4: are running a bit over. Yeah. Do you have anything else? So just a few things I'll mention. We we did some uh restoration of first creek out of California Park, and I think that's very successful. It was willow planting, there was uh
5: preventing the erosion that we're seeing
4: out there in that creek, creating some more bends in it. Um so some really great work out there if you haven't been out there lately. It, it's such a special place. Um and so knowing I, that we're I doing have some seen that's over. There. thank you. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic work, and there's more to do out there, and we've got great partners like Trout Limited and others that are involved uh, in Valley sustainability council, others that we've talked to uh, that, are, that are interested as well, so more to come in California Park, but some great work this summer that happened out there. Um, and then uh, we, if you're interested, we, we've, uh, we've renewed our lease on our current building that we have in town. For, I think it's another 20 years. And so we're working through the process uh, with, with the owner on some renovations and things with our new lease, but, um, but just so you know, we are uh, going to stay in place there for the foreseeable CPW. Right? CPW B- C- B- is in the same building, still. So, yeah, that won't change as well. Um, and then um, upcoming stuff. So uh, our Mad Rabbit Trails project, uh, that's been Everybody ongoing for a while out. as well. Um, we are are hoping to have that out sometime either before or after Thanksgiving uh, for public comment and so we'll we'll uh, keep you update on that but that's well, what well, you have that out. On. we hope to have it out before or after Thanksgiving.
3: Before or after.
0: Yeah. Probably
4: yeah. after Thanksgiving. It won't be a Black Friday special, I promise. So, uh, maybe, maybe a little after. Uh, you know, when you have a public comment period, and there's normally a 30-day public comment period on, on something like this, um, but if it falls over a holiday, like especially major ones, you know, during during this time of year, there's a lot of holidays towards the end of year. Um, so, uh, if we need to make it 45 days, you know, to give people adequate time. I'm interested in doing that, but a part of it's going to be, you know, how much is it overlapping with all days? Is it going to be tougher for people to get their comments in time? But uh, that's what we're trying to figure out as far as timing of getting it out there. But we're we're trying to get close to finishing up that uh, document, the environmental assessment, on there so we can get it out in the public comment. And then also um, sometime here in the near future too. Uh, uh, we have our Buffalo, Buffalo pass road improvement project. Uh, that road is supposed to be uh, a level three road, which is, uh, Maine's level three from forest service means passenger cars can go on it. And a lot of people might only want to take the trucks on it. It's not a fun ride. Um, but, uh, but this project will make that road much more travel, and it also creates some safety, um, uh, Improvements such as pullouts, where there's maybe more of a single lane area and some of those switchbacks, and uh, we also will be addressing some of the unsustainable dispersed uh, camping, you know, people parking in meadows or, or right by creeks or lakes or something. So uh, a few aspects to that, but uh, but that should be hopefully coming out soon as well. I'm not I'm not sure the timing with that, but I, I don't want them to both fall the same exact time. But uh, it's really just a matter of meeting it to do a final review and then you
1: put that out there. What's so. the timeline? I'm
4: sorry. Uh, sometime in the next couple months. Okay. Before but, the end of the year. But I mean do you anticipate actually doing work up there next yeah. summer? Uh, if we if we can, I think so, because we have some money. We don't have all the money we need to implement the full project, but we do have some hot highway dollars already to do at least part of that project. Okay. Uh, so as long as we're able to get a contract out and find a contractor, and, and I think especially living in Steamboat, we all know how hard that is. So uh, I think road re- contractors are easier to find than plumbers. I, yeah, <laughs> I hope so. Took, I had one guy tell me four weeks when I called about a leaky toilet. So oh, yeah. Um, so yeah.
3: That's
4: uh, quick, so don't get too excited. <laughs> So, so, yeah, uh, if, we can, if we can get contracts and a contractor and everything lined up, then it could happen starting next summer. But I can't say if that's, that'll happen for sure. But I can say that I expect to have this, this planning document ready to go the next two months. Um, so those are the main things I wanted to uh, touch on. Are there other questions that I didn't talk about, uh, topics I didn't talk about or follow ups on anything? I think we could sit here for hours. Yeah. A, whole, a whole yeah. of questions, but I really appreciate the
1: yeah. the things that are actually happening on the ground in your in yeah. your district that we know about. So this is yeah. really really helpful.
4: Yeah, well happy to happy to come in and, and talk and, and maybe I'll see one of you at the land manager breakfast in the morning. You'll see me. Okay. <laughs> so, so we can talk about any further follow up stuff tomorrow. morning, okay. but. Uh, yeah, and, and I look forward to just continuing to come in at least quarterly. And, and obviously, if there's times you guys want me to come in uh, sooner, I'm happy to do that. So, next next time, once you ask for an hour,
1: I don't think 30 okay. minutes is enough generally to talk about everything yeah. we would like to talk about. It. We're doing a lot of things. So you're definitely welcome. Appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Thank
0: you. Great. Thanks for making time. Yeah. Well, thank you. We're back at one. Good um, <laughs> to know. I okay.
1: Well, she was exposed last Friday. So. All right, MS,
0: what have you got for us here? Oh, uh,
1: we're just
7: following up with the redistricting feedback that we received. So I provide you with the feedback I received through my stuff, and I'm not sure what you received through your emails. But you know, we only got 13 responses, and the overall, welling. Um, support is for the option one, which is just pretty much the really good how it is. Would you repeat that? The overwhelming support is for option one. How do you define overwhelming? Well, by looking at boxes, there it's thirteen to. Uh, oh, one to four, round one
2: versus the round ten to three. So. In one of them, I got a kick out of it. It was like. Well, I think option two would be the best option. And then when it came down to it, they chose option one.
7: Yeah, and uh, I agree. There was a little confusing back and forth. So it's like, what? Yeah. So at this time, I'll plan on continuing with uh, option
0: one. And I
7: almost got it prepared. So you'll probably see me by September or early in December sometime or early December to, um, with the resolution to finalize
2: that. And so the legal description is something that you're, you're working on. Yeah, and it, they're and all it, but done. And it covers the same, exactly the same as what we looked at before yes. in terms of the neighborhood stuff. Yeah, unless I hear
7: otherwise that you make any adjustments to option one, which we certainly
1: could do. So let's just talk again about what we've talked about before, which is uh, as it stands now with the current districts and as it would mostly remain or would remain with option number one it is possible that all three commissioners could be residents of the city of steamboat springs yes was that also true with option number two
7: yes now if we wanted to discuss city further i think there would be an option out there to have it only down to two commissioners
1: but uh Again, that's we could, we could theoretically possible to draw a district that would guarantee one of the commissioners did not live in the city of St. Stevens- we very large. Did we receive any comments uh, about that possibility? We do mean, not. Granted, me. we did not present yeah. that as a possibility.
7: Great. Right. Uh, I did not gather any feedback with regards, no.
1: And then uh, could you characterize the comments from the people that did not like option number one and preferred option number 2 i uh, We'll give you yep. a minute to look through
7: those. So the first one did not have a comment.
0: comment. Hmm? No comment. No comment
7: me. on the second one. And for the third submission, uh, states that option one is too clearly divisive, hitting rural, route county against the city of Steamboat. As our county is facing tremendous pressures from incomers, the rural community values which make it strong are suffering further. We need to take further steps, subs- or we need to accept subs- from further divisiveness, urban versus rural. Uh, it continues on further, kind of on the same vein.
1: So. Option one, which is pretty much what we have right now, does create a district where the only resident of the city of Steamboat Springs could be elected to that seat. And then we've isolated the city of Steamboat as its own district. So my opinion on that, that argument can be made both ways no matter what. And frankly, from our perspective, a lot of it's almost irrelevant given the fact that the vote is yeah, countywide,
0: yeah, mm-hmm. And I think in order to be elected a
1: commissioner, um, whether it's in your district or my district or if you're living in the city of Steamboat Springs, you need a majority of all the people in Steamboat to vote for you.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think from my perspective, um, the status quo, to my way of
1: thinking, has worked extremely well through the years Route County. It's hard for me to come up with a compelling reason why we should uh, try something
2: different. You know, I'm in some strong support with you. And, and I agree with you, the fact that no matter what district you're in, you're going to have to have support in the city of Steamboat Springs to be elected. And the fact that everybody gets to vote for all three commissions, I'm comfortable with this and I do think it's the best option. What are we looking at here I
7: This is option one and uh, just to assure um, your question about all three current would this option come from the city? So the, the colored blocks are the proposed options or districts I should say. Uh, And the gray outline is the city of Stilwell Springs boundary.
0: So, so the the gray color
1: is district one or the city of pink, the pinkish red color
7: will be district one. Right. Uh, Yellow would be district district two. two and the blue, this is pretty similar to the current district three.
0: Black lines that disappeared are the current
7: 2010 commissioner districts. So, this is in district one
0: currently? That's correct. Yeah, this would be district one. That's correct. And then, what happens when do
7: that? The new one, the, the biggest change, I should say biggest, but like right along here. District 1 gets pulled up to uh, Highway 40. The colors that yep. the, the colors are in the lines the line proposed
0: ones. So you've got that small. There, are these people used to be in District 1. Or district 3, District
3: 3, right now they in District 1.
0: Be the old voters. And also, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, why did you choose to increase the or add numbers just
1: one by virtue of moving in?
7: Well, that's the highway right there. And quite frankly, for the ease of writing a legal description,
0: <laughs> it's yeah. a good description
7: uh, because I can just call out highway along the U.S. Highway 40 and. Cruise right along that and not have to go along
1: streams or multiple streets or whatever. You could have increased district one population by just moving some of this as well.
7: That actually the area, and let me highlight on the map here myself, just so if there's online folks, this area right here is the densest population in Stehope Springs. And so Messing with the numbers in this area is pretty difficult. Oh, I got you. So if we start chomping in there, you get you get large numbers with just tiny little swaths Mm -hmm. in that
0: area. Yeah, I mean, these seem to be interesting details,
1: but not determinative. In my mind, as to your job was to come up with three roughly equal districts of population, Mm -hmm. and this was the most straightforward way that you could do that. Yes, you could have done it with the option number two in a straightforward manner as well. You know, there's
7: a thousand ways to skin this cat, right? And yeah, if you wanted to. Keep a one district whole within the entire city. You know, it could be moved further to the northwest corner and completely reconfigured. Again, um, there's there's a million ways to do this. This was the s- simplest as far as going with their current lines.
1: Uh, most of the population increase in the 2020 census took place inside of the city of Steamboat Springs. Is that?
7: Um, majority, of Hayden actually the south side of Hayden grew pretty significantly compared. I mean, for the Hayden itself, it gained uh, quite a few people.
1: Uh, but certainly, in order to get District One up to, the level, to be one third, it was necessary to add townships of the city of Simsbury into District One that were not in there before. Uh, I.
7: So sure about that? Well, I'm just say, i just looking at it, what, what it was previously. Um, I'm not sure there was much change between that, uh, uh, between the 2010 and this proposal.
2: the, was, the black line was the old. Uh, yeah.
7: As far as area covered by District 1, within the city, I would have to go. you actually drew this
1: area that previously been a district one and a district three. It's yes, somewhere. yeah. And that's about it, right?
7: Yeah, it is. Well, there's that little tiny corner, right? Oh, well, this guy's drawn district three and this guy's
1: drawn
7: in district three. Again, that's really for the ease of writing a legal description. Uh, more than balancing the uh, population. So, if we followed the city boundaries on the southern end there, that legal description would get to be a lot easier to write.
0: And
1: then you drew
7: this out of the city into district. district 2. Correct. Out of District
1: 3. Into, into district, district 2. Into District 2. It's all this little area is still within the city of Steepo. So, what portion of steamboat the city of steamboat was in District Two before now?
7: I can't answer that. Actually, we'd need to go around, but it's not a significant area.
1: Okay, I'm looking at this no. map, and I don't see where anything. Oh, I guess this got drawn in too. Yes. This came from District 2 and District 1. Yes. Maybe something up in here. So, Commissioner Melt, before you came in, we uh, were discussing
0: the results of the survey. I mean, mm-hmm. uh stated that the
1: survey was i think she was overwhelmingly in favor of option number one which was the option closest to what we have now there were two but there were only 13 respondents two of them did not like our um, did not like option number one Uh, one of those comments didn't give any comments or reasons and the other comment stated something to the effect that this was Somehow creating a divisive situation between the, the city and the rural yeah, areas. I read the comments that were
3: there. And there were definitely some um, comments that, you know, all three commissioners could be from Steamboat, but
1: as we've talked about, that's always the case. So we could have drawn it. It's theoretically yeah, right. possible to draw a map that we are to you not that. worthy to. Commissioners both the city of the city's neighbor, but both Commissioner uh, Redmond and myself stated that uh, it's a county vote. You need to get a majority of the votes and, uh no matter where you're from. So it really just comes down to a question is who lives in which district. That's kind of the luck of the draw, in my opinion. Yeah. Sorry, Emily then. Thanks for your work on this. I read through the comments before. So, so what do we need to do? I'm prepared, personally, to direct Emmy to go ahead and finish up. with will one want as near as possible as what's been presented. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to think of a compelling reason to do
3: something different. Well, so that process would be that Emmy would bring it forward and we mm-hmm. have a resolution that would yes. be a public hearing yes. at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I agree. I mean, I think, as we said last time, barring any kind of overwhelming interest in making a change. This to make sense, and we didn't, we didn't
1: have that. So um, just one quick census question. Mm-hmm. What was the increase in Round County's population between the 2010 and the 2020 census?
7: Uh, it put me on the spot a little bit. I just <laughs> went, we went to 24,786 people. and I can't tell you what the exact population was in
3: town. It was like less than 2,000, though. Wasn't it? I, and that's it's what around, I'm thinking, yeah. is uh,
1: that somewhere
3: around 2,000. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. Well, we don't necessarily factor yeah, exactly. it, but okay.
1: yes, it is what it is. And yeah, It's a hard to gauge what the true population of the community Round County is with
2: so many visitors. Right, right. People coming in and leaving. But just every
7: time we get a census right now, we've got something going on, some kind of crisis. And
2: exactly. Short changes a little bit. And Emmy, real quick, when you worked on this, she, it was in conjunction with the county clerk, and Kim was involved, so yes. reviewing the maps to, for her ease of administering petitions and stuff.
3: And that uh, pretty and yeah, yes. Yeah, and I think you talked about to the extent that you changed those borders, it was really just to make it um, simpler to describe where the borders oh, are. Just
7: making my job simpler. Right. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, we'd be having a whole different conversation if we voted by describing. So right. It's it's fairly straightforward. Uh, and so I'll just plan on
7: coming uh, to the board sometime in early December with a resolution for. Discussion potential approval.
2: We can get it done before the end of the year.
7: That's the requirement. What <laughs> I thought they gave us an option to. enroll can roll till
2: 2023. Right. We can't okay. do it next year. So it's either now or two years. Right. Looks like we've got our game together. Thanks to, thanks to you. Thank you. Okay.
8: Commissioners? Yes. Robin, I, I, I just had a question. I was wondering if Emmy could just, um, <clears throat> on that map, I see Dylan in the bra- background and I'm sure uh, there's some other public. Could you just state the, um, the actual geographic lines, um, maybe the south of Steamboat Springs, the east, uh, west and the north, just like some of the street names or highway names that might be helpful.
7: I'd be happy to. Well, I could state that there's a lot on there as far as street names
8: go. Well, just like maybe just just some just major markers, um, just so that people get a sense, because hard to tell on the map.
0: I
1: think that's going to be really hard for her to answer, Robin. Okay. I think there's a lot of detail in question there. The maps will. Provided
7: prior to the public hearing. Yeah, the part of the resolution requirement is a map with it. And in 2010, it was a large 24 by 36 paper map of the okay. entire county. Okay. Uh, and legal descriptions will be very detailed.
4: All
8: right, thank you. So when whenever you do that in December, then you'll have that. Yes. Okay,
5: thank you.
1: Thank you, Emmy. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> well, I'm actually here. Uh, when you printed that blueprint, uh-huh. you just printed it 100%, and it, it says 8.5 by 11, but it comes out full size on the 24 by 36 paper.
7: Because I told it to expand and fit the printer uh, wow. boundaries. Uh... So, can you print at 113%? Um, oh, so of the happens.
0: eight and a half. Yeah, that's that'd be fine. it's, okay. it's gonna come out, you know, just a little bit bigger
7: than this. Yeah, it'll be that
0: it'll be closer to what I need. Good, okay, I'll go do that right now. I appreciate it. Yep.
1: All right, what's so, up next? Next item is at 2 p.m. with
3: a
0: COVID
3: update from okay. home. Great, okay. as will just recess till that. Thank you. Hey, Jennifer.
0: Did I hear somebody?
3: I think it was. Brenda, you have
7: for the, uh, you have
3: for...
0: Oh,
3: owl
0: winking. Winking, winking. Yeah,
2: I was winking at <laughs>
3: you. <laughs> I love you too, owl.
0: <laughs> I'm a
2: married woman.
3: <laughs> oh my god, it's just
0: bad.
3: We got two owls.
9: Yeah. So, So, what is it like? So, it's a murder of crows, but what's a group of mm-hmm. owls?
6: I don't know, but I
8: bet they have a boot. Ah! It's a parliament of owls, actually.
3: Wow. That is awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love I it. That's true. I, I that's right. yeah.
2: I, I knew it was a murder crows, but I didn't know. That
3: confirms that that is
6: correct.
0: <laughs> so it so must be so. Must be.
3: I mean, we'll watch the YouTube video then.
9: So, now do we call this Parliament? <laughs> well, I say let's continue
0: Parliament right
7: now. I would say let's call it
2: road.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, we are here for, for an update from uh, our public health director and our chief medical officer. Welcome. And all to all the folks from public health here today. Yeah. Roberta, what have you got for us today?
9: Sure. Well, I kind of wanted to start off with just some public health updates because. You know, public health has been happening since we last met, as has COVID. Um, But I just wanted to um, acknowledge Brooke Maxwell, who has been our public health nurse. And um, she is going to be taking a new job at the end of November. um, And she'll still be part of the public health team as kind of we need to call her back but um, she will, won't be on our full-time staff anymore. So I just wanted to
5: say thank you
9: to Brooke for all of her help. And um, we're working her to the la- bitter end. <laughs> um, and we are working with HR to get that position um, approved, we did make some minor changes to the job description to make it more um, public health. I think it was very COVID focused when we first put that out, like in September
0: of 2020. Understand, so, right. Yeah, so
9: um, so we're just waiting for that approval with HR to go ahead and um, get that posted. We have had some interest, so, um, so this is... This is good, Um, and we are still interviewing for um, a nurse health educator to join our team, so um, we're going through that process as well, so.
8: Congratulations, Brooke, on your new job. Thank you, I'll still be around. I might pop into a Board of Health meeting, you never know, (laughs) if they keep sending me the link. (laughs)
1: <laughs> we decided to go ahead and build you a whole nice new building and now
0: you're
8: <laughs> I'll still be around just not full-time
9: <laughs> so um so we um I think last when we spoke we were talking a little bit about budget and some of the um uh Submissions we had made to get some extra funding, we were awarded the additional funding to start the CHAPS process. So this is our community health assessment, and. Um, you know, if we can pull Nicole away from COVID, um, you know, and starting to collect other data metrics. um, We do have that additional funding through CDPHE to support that process. It's not a ton of money, but it's always helps. And we are working with our public health partners. Um, We've had a couple meetings already with the health partnership um, to understand what the other community health assessments Needs are. We realize that our community has filled out a lot of surveys as of late, and so um, trying to consolidate as much as we can to meet all of the needs of our health partners um, in the county as well, um, to make sure we're getting the data collected that we need and the evaluation pieces that we need. So, um, so that's.
1: I'm I'm excited about. I'm really excited about that. I mean, I recall the last go around and. You know, we were kind of outsiders to the process. So Mm -hmm. it's really exciting to have a fully functioning public health department we're controlling that process and making sure it gets done right. And I'm not
0: saying it wasn't done right. It's just the Mm -hmm. process was not very fulfilling.
1: Let's just put it that
9: way. Right, right. And we're lucky um, that uh, Nicole has experience doing this for other counties. So um, kind of building on that. Um, to use here in the archive. so um, pretty excited about that. Um, I wanted to just bring up a brief um, change in CDC um, updates. Um, we, again, as trying to look at all public health matters, um, one change that CDC put out was in regards to childhood blood lead levels, So this is um, for children um, that are under five, right? So under five, yeah. It's um, part of their well child visits. Um, Medicaid also has some requirements around screening children for lead levels. And so um, CDC recently updated their reference lead level before we were working with five micrograms or greater for concern um, is in childhood lead levels. And that reference range has now changed to 3.5 micrograms per deciliter um, for that reference level. So again, kind of being a little bit more sensitive to try to track um, any signs of um, lead, um, issues that need maybe um, to be looked at from a household remediation standpoint, an education standpoint, um, with families um, that have young children in the household. So, do
1: pediatricians typically screen? For-
6: yeah, a few years ago it was based on uh, zip code, mm-hmm. and so there were like two or three zip codes in Denver that you're supposed to screen, but they've since revised it, and now it is based. Both on a screening form school skip families a screening form to fill out, as well as their healthcare coverage. So um, for uh, state or federally funded uh, uh, insurance programs, those kids all qualify for lead screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that because
3: they're considered to be high risk? Yes.
7: Them?
9: Yeah. So you can see um, lead, of course, in older homes in, in paint. Um, and that could you know, also be found potentially in play areas around a house that maybe had um, lead paint. Um, also, you know, we get concerned with lead levels in, in water systems and other potential exposures, even occupational exposures, people potentially bringing um, lead home on their work clothing um, and potentially contaminating the spaces within their household. So um, just, you know, um, a little bit more awareness and hopefully, um, you know, as we grow as a program, being able to provide point of care um, lead testing is one of the, the goals that I would see us uh, providing services for so
6: and I think this is one of the projects right, that we mm-hmm. kind of tag for our nurse educator as a party mm-hmm. in the
9: year Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of... Um, It's an easy, um, it's, we need to educate people, but I think it's, there's an easy process and easy testing mechanism and an easy message to get out to providers um, to really start looking at our surveillance in our county. So, um, all right. So that's kind of our, General public health stuff that's um, been going on. We continue to kind of look at our strategic planning document and circling back to that um, as we can <laughs> with um, all of the the COVID um, stuff um, going on. So, um, all right, COVID nineteen updates. Or did you have anything else that you wanted to? Not
0: this one. Okay. I it.
9: Okay. Um, So a couple things that um, have been going on recently, we'll we'll definitely have um, Dr. Morrison and Nicole give us an update on our data and talk about the data, Um, but a few things that have kind of hit um, the news lately. Um, Last week, OSHA came out with their emergency temporary standard. um, And this is in regards to um, employers that have 100 or more employees, and requiring a mandatory vaccination policy, um, and you know testing um, potentially for those that are not vaccinated. Um, there's various um, guidelines and bullet points that need to be met in the standard that OSHA has pu- put published out there. Um, and again, this is for entities. Um, OSHA, you know, covers um, public and private entities, but not like state and um, local governments. So, you know, we're, although minimum uh, OSHA is the minimum standard of safety, places should be looking at those safety standards, even if they're not, quote unquote, um, covered by OSHA. Um, but this is, I think, going to help propel um, some of these employers to increasing vaccination levels among their employees. So again, it's at least 100 employees, firm or corporate-wide. And this also includes if a company has um, part-time people um, as a part of their their payrolls. So we do have some entities in our county that would fall under um, this standard. So we've been putting out information to them And there are some really good resources on the OSHA website. They actually have a webinar um, that was just published that covers information. There's um, OSHA has um, fact sheets um, that are easily accessible also on the website. So um, we're working with some of our employers to understand the testing component, because if you're not vaccinated, you can have a system that um, employees get tested once a week. So what does that look like? You can't do self tests. OSHA will not permit self tests. So it has to be a proctored test. Um, So kind of looking at how that might affect our countywide testing that's going on. um, If we see an increase um, in employers sending employees there. Um, right now, um, we're, we're able to meet that capacity on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday testing that we have going on. But um, looking at you know, how it might affect the community is one thing that um, I'm working on. I actually um, have a contact at Region 8 OSHA who's going to talk to local public health departments on Wednesday about the standard and how it might impact local um, public health testing sites. So. when does it going to affect that requirement? So the, um, you have to have your mandated program 30 days after the issuance of the, the ETS. Um, right now, I think it, there was some talk that it was on hold um, and not officially published, but I'm sure that will shake out that it will be officially published. And then it's 30 days from the issuance. And then the um, vaccination deadline, I believe, is 60
3: days. So uh,
1: any uh, company is part of a national chain here in Steamboat, even if they only have 10 local employees are subject to the vaccination Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, you have any idea? how You probably don't know how many businesses we're talking about, but yeah. given the fact mm-hmm. that all national chains mm-hmm. involve a significant number of employers.
0: Yes, yes. So,
7: so that would be all the big boxes and everything like that. <laughs> yep.
2: yep. I think UPS.
9: Yeah. Like any.
2: Any national thing.
9: chain restaurants.
2: Because originally I was thinking steep maybe 20 mile, you know, uh, right. it's, it's going to be quite a bit more than that. Yeah.
9: Yeah. And if you think about it too, a lot of these larger companies, you know, do have overarching like safety programs. I don't know how really that works with some of the franchise businesses per se, but. Those are questions I'll be asking
1: my OSHA friend.
0: <laughs> you know, the question
1: from my mind will be well, in my experience, OSHA does a great job of writing rules and regulations that are not so robust
0: or actually enforcing them. What they typically do is they go and
1: make an example of somebody. It's not like they're checking every business. Right, right.
9: Yeah, and they tend to, um, you know, you can, as an employee or employer, you know, you can submit um, concerns to OSHA, and I think the majority of times that I've had to respond to OSHA inquiries have been just um, letter-based, where you have to prove, like, we, um, one of the hospitals that I worked at, someone um thought that the noise levels exceeded, um, you know, what you could tolerate for a working shift in the waiting room. And I, I don't know if this person had ever visited a manufacturing plant before, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we, I had to do noise level monitoring in the waiting area um, to show that it was under 85 decibels for
1: the, you know, weighted average, so. Well, I recall thinking that OCEAN is an overbearing, difficult organization to work with. But the fact of the matter is they've saved lives, mm -hmm. at least in the construction industry. There's a lot of guys that are alive today that would not be otherwise without their goals.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what the impetus of this um, temporary standard is, is to really protect workers. And having those protections for you know maybe an employer that maybe thought that COVID wasn't a big issue, so I do think that it is a good uh, move on the part of OSHA to make sure that we have safe working places. So that information is all posted on the OSHA website. They've got you know some really good. points about, you know, what needs to be included in the plan and what is isn't, And also in regards to um, not only testing employees, but um, time off for vaccinations and removal. Um, And I think this was an important piece of that standard, even though it's something that we've been kind of touting with our businesses for mitigation plans is Not letting people that are sick with COVID come to work. (laughs) And that is part of the OSHA standard now. So, you know, even from our standpoint, too, not that we enforce OSHA rules as um, a county health department, but, you know, it is now an OSHA standard that employers need to abide by. And if we, you know, see that happening, that's one thing that we can share with the employers. Here's it written out. that you have to do this per OSHA.
1: So. Yeah, one violates OSHA rules at one's own risk. Correct. Right. That'll be your bank
3: account. Just to, this is not related to the OSHA rule, but uh, federal law. I, I was somewhere, I think maybe a chamber board meeting, and there was a question from someone about are we going to continue to be mandated to pay for sick, additional sick leave? To stay home with COVID and I think they were especially thinking about people who are not vaccinated, mm-hmm. right? Having to continue to have this coverage for folks who have to quarantine or um, are getting ill. Mm-hmm. Has there been any change in those rules that you're aware of?
9: So the last that I, so we've got the Northwest Workforce Center mm-hmm. here, and they're an excellent resource yeah. um, for that information. And I do believe the last time we spoke to them, it was carrying through at least through November, I believe. Um, and they keep, you know, looking at that and renewing that. So that would be a good question that
3: I can get clarified through them. That. Yeah, that would yeah, good. thanks. Yeah, I mean, I understand the concern from employers, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you want to. It- and advise people to stay home when
9: they're sick. Right. right? So it's a negative exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, also last week, um, I wanted to bring up that CDPHE did issue a public health advisory um, in conjunction with the Metro um, Public Health District. And this was um, an advisory really talking about, and we'll we'll look at this with some of our data, and I think Dr. Harrington can expound on our local situation here um, with our hospital, Um, but looking at the the situation on the front range and the capacity that the ICUs are filling up on the front range. So this public health advisory was a step to essentially remind people of all the good things that you need to do um, to mitigate transmission of COVID. And um, I, you know, I think coming from Route County, issuing a similar advisory just with all of those bullet points, um, should go out and remind our community exactly what are the best steps um, for COVID transmission prevention Um, within the advisory and um, the draft that I have put together um, really talks about, you know, people who are eligible to get vaccinated. We just saw um, last week as well, our um, childhood vaccinations being approved. So making sure that everyone who's eligible um, does get vaccinated. They also emphasize um, booster doses for those that it is recommended. Um, but they also have an additional statement in there that, um, Colorado's prevalence of COVID-19 makes the state a high risk area to live and work and, um, stating that anyone who is 18 and older who would like a booster and is either six months past their initial series of the mRNA vaccine or two months past the one dose J and J should make a plan to get a booster. So this, this came through CDPHE as a it's a little bit different recommendation from CDC um, and their um, high risk message for those um, to, to get a booster. But um CDPHE thought because of um, you know we're fifth in the nation for COVID transmission. And so that was really uh, part of the impetus in having this wider um, recommendation for uh, booster vaccines and, you know, making sure that um, people who are high risk for COVID. So if you're not fully vaccinated, or if you have a high risk condition, um, you know, limiting um, what you do in your life, and maybe, um, you know, Staying away or limiting your time in public spaces. Um, they talk about monoclonal antibodies, and I think Dr. Harrington can uh, fill us in on our monoclonal antibody use, but really kind of pushing that as well, um, because that can help prevent um, some of the severe hospitalizations. And again, you know, um, mask wearing in crowded indoor spaces, regardless of vaccination status. Um, having public or private gatherings larger ones outside when you can do that limiting the number of people so really the the same messages that we've been promoting but these are in a public health advisory to just kind of bring that up to the top if you will and remind everyone of um, our best transmission practices so um, so i've created a um uh, public health advisory for route County. Just kind of putting our data that we'll talk about today in there, and having those points, and we'll um, put those out as a press release at the end of this uh, meeting today. So Robin will put those up. So, um,
3: Dr. Harrington, do you want uh,
0: well, I... we we
7: to? Well, do we want go to. to the first. Okay.
9: Yeah, Nicole, why don't we? Um, do the numbers. And then I want Brooke also to
3: talk about vaccinations as well, because that's our best tool.
5: Great. Thank you. Um, So, uh, First, I just wanted to mention that uh, Dr. Morrison and I were actually down in Denver a couple of weeks ago and presented the, the, on the work that we've done in Route County to develop this COVID dashboard with locally relevant information and using data best practices. And um, so we presented at the American Public Health Association Conference and our work was really well received. So I just wanted to say thank you for uh, to our commissioners in particular for valuing locally relevant data and really using this information to help inform decision-making for our county. So thanks for that. And kind of uh,
8: context that everyone was required to be vaccinated and masks were worn everywhere indoors at the conference. So we weren't being super risky by going. You
5: don't want that to be your super, super spreader event. No. Exactly, the public health conference with everyone getting COVID, not a good idea. Um, and then an additional note about data. So at the end of October, CDPHE, updated all of their metrics to use 2020 census data population estimates. Uh, and uh, Route County's population in the 2020 census is about 200, or sorry, about 800 people fewer than the 2019 state demography office estimate, which we have been using. Uh, I have not updated our uh, denominators because many of our Metrics use sub-county level population estimates either by age or by zip code, and that is not yet available. So some of the estimates that you see on our dashboard are going to be slightly different than what CDPHE has for us. It is that the, the denominator is different. So I like, that's been a theme that we have a denominator problem, still have a denominator problem. Okay, right. so uh, our key metrics here, Uh, You can see that our incidence is increasing. It's increasing exponentially. Our positivity is elevated and increasing. Uh, Our hospitalizations are elevated and stable. And I just wanna make a note that the data that I'm presenting right now is slightly different than what's on our public dashboard. I included data through yesterday. Um, I feel confident with that and I think it's important for us to see that complete week as we're looking at information. Um, And then I just want to say that we're we're seeing a similar spike in cases as to what we saw last fall. Our current incidence rates are higher than they were at the end of October 2020. And and as we'll see in the data that I present, disease transmission in our community is primarily being driven by school-age residents and primarily in areas of Route County with low vaccination rates. Uh, so you can see that our uh, most recent week, we've had about 100 cases um, and a little over 200 in our most recent two weeks. We uh, have had pretty consistent hospitalizations among both Route County residents and some non route County residents being hospitalized at uh, UC Health Yampa Valley Medical Center. Uh, so we, that's been pretty consistent for the last few months.
1: Oh, um, so, go back to that last slide, please, Nicole. So that bottom number there, the COVID-9 hospitalizations at Yappa Valley Medical Center, um, five to nine as opposed to Route County residents, does that mean that the hospital here is uh, has non-residents hospitalized?
0: Sometimes just
6: I, I and then you. that number reflects people who've been admitted, transferred out, admitted and discharged, and admitted and still here.
3: But I, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that five to nine is
6: the highest number I've ever seen on there. I mean, We seem to be pretty steady now with uh, multiple people in the hospital at any given time. And we are you know, dealing with people now who are in their long recovery. Um, you know, are in the hospital for weeks. And we do not have the ability to transfer people out. We can take care of some of these people if they've gone past a critical point. But that, that mix, we have acute infected people. We have people who we admitted well, you know, a couple weeks ago and they're still, you know, we're, we're still working on them to recover to the point where they can actually go home.
1: They're not in the intensive care.
6: Uh, no, not necessarily. But, you know The decision to send to my home is based on their ability to breathe with um, low enough levels of oxygenation that they can get by with just an oxygen tank. They need to be eating. Some of their organ functions have to be recovered because our critically ill people often face multiple organ um, problems, and all those have to get to the point they can be safe to go home. And I mean, you get know, to walk and take care of yourself. And we don't have the rehab uh, facility beds right now either, either locally or in the state to send people to. So we're taking care of people that, at a different time, we might have sent them to maybe a skilled nursing facility.
3: So is it true? I know historically our biggest issue with capacity has been our ability to transfer people out. Would you say that's still the case, or is it also increasing numbers of people
0: being hospitalized?
6: We're getting by okay locally. I mean, there are some um, challenges with staffing. Although our hospital, you know, I think has has done well. They like every other facility does. They don't have all the people that they wish they had. We have the challenge of transferring people out. It's um, you know, it's become acute in the last couple of weeks that we may not be able to get somebody out exactly when we pick up the phone and call to, to find a bed. Um, and the um, state has even talked about transferring people back to us to try to offload some low acuity patients from some of the other facilities. We've been getting phone calls from other hospitals um, in our neck of the woods um, asking if we have you know, room to put some in because our other hospitals are struggling to. And so this this whole system ripple effect is a problem. If um, Commissioner Melton, you get a car accident today, we might have some challenges getting into a trauma center. You know, I mean, you know, you fall, get Mm -hmm. there are scenarios there that uh, so far we work hard and and, uh, we get it. Our E.R. folks work hard to find beds, and the state has their referral center now, where they're trying to spread this out. Um, But it's a challenge, and it's gotten worse each month.
1: Percentage
6: of, uh, uh, of vaccinated versus unvaccinated in the hospital? Pretty exclusively unvaccinated in people. Our, we have had, I'm a little loose with this, we're trying to confirm this number. I think we've had over 70 COVID admissions, and I believe only three represent kind of breakthrough cases of people who are vaccinated. Those people, um, you know, for the most part, those individuals were in and out the doors in a day or two and, and did well. Um, the people who were dying, the people that were transferred out, the people who are ventilated—they're all unvaccinated people. Of all ages, um, we've had—it's not exclusively people over age 80 or some stereotype like that. It's been people through many decades. Um,
0: Okay, Nicole,
5: I guess we won't have slide else. over here. <laughs> <laughs> right, So looking at our countywide instance, we're all familiar with seeing this graph, so This just again shows that where we're at now is higher than we were a year ago, which was um, incidents on there. I, seasonality, you know, a week or two, we wouldn't necessarily expect things would line up exactly, but we're paying attention to that um, as we move into the fall. Um, again, these are the same, uh, same information just presented looking at a two week time period. Uh, I think that sometimes this graph is a little bit easier to see what is happening in, in the community. Um, so I've done a little bit of work to separate out our incidents by age groups and regions uh, recently, just try to understand a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, so this graph was new last time uh, we had our update. So it's looking in orange at the incidence rate among school age residents in Route County and then in gray are non-school age residents in Route County. And uh, the definition there is that non-school age is those zero to four and 18 and older. Um, and then we, I separated this out a little bit more as I was, we were curious about what we were seeing among the school age population that has been a vaccine eligible and then now they are vaccine eligible. I need to update that as of a few days ago. Um, but in the in the gray is our non-school age Route County residents. Um, and then I zoomed into just this school year here for our Y-axis. And then in the, the red is our orangish color is our uh, newly eligible vaccine, um, newly eligible for the vaccine population. So it's five to 11. And then our yellow is the vaccine eligible population. And what we can see is that we had an increase in incidence rate among both of those school age age groups as we entered the school year. Um, which makes sense because we had a lot more congregating and mixing among individuals in ways that we weren't seeing over the summer, combined with uh, elevated overall incidents within our community. And then that sort of that dropped off, um, started increasing a little bit more uh, in recent weeks among our 12 to 17 year old population that has been vaccine eligible for a number of months. However, we have not seen that um, drop off as substantially in that five to 11 year old age group. So this is just highlighting that you know, this, this age group still remains at elevated risk of COVID and that we're very excited about the newly um, newly approved and authorized uh, COVID vaccines for children.
3: Then, then, when, when did 12 year olds become eligible? I don't remember when were 12 year olds?
6: August
8: obviously. Think. It was the summer sometime for sure.
5: Yeah. I can't remember either. Uh, and then we wanted to know a little bit more about where we were seeing cases throughout our County. Um, so I was trying to look again, um, over the school year and where were we seeing cases in different parts of the County? I've excluded North route from here. North It has a very small population. Um, but we can see, uh, that, uh, much higher incidence rate in the South Route community, both early in the school year and then um, increasing in recent times uh, as well. We are currently investigating an outbreak associated with Halloween activities um, in that area of the county.
1: Tell so you just anecdotally, living in South Route County, it seems like there's a problem.
3: I would I, some of that
5: I data um, confers what we've been seeing. It, and I down. just sorry, 12. the
8: vaccine answer is actually May. Twelve to fifteen year olds were um, that was vaccine was approved in May for those that age group. Sorry, just put that mm-hmm. in context. So, Nicole, that um,
1: this graph that we're looking at right now is not um, available on our COVID dashboard.
5: No, I because of small populations, I don't think it's appropriate for us to present this data overall. Um, we do have some estimates of uh, regional incidence rate. I have a graph that shows um, the most recent completed month. So right now you can see for the month of October, where did we see, uh, what was our incidence rate like in different parts of the county? Um, but just in order to protect uh, some anonymity in our cases, uh, I don't have this whole graph on the public dashboard. Rather just a snapshot for today.
1: I understand that, but I, I've got to say it's, it's frustrating when we have data like this. Uh, it's certainly something I wouldn't mind sharing with some folks that live in my part of the county to help them understand the consequences of mm-hmm. an area that has a low vaccination rate. But is there is there a
3: place or a way, Nicole, that you could share the snapshot? Because I understand what you're saying. I mean, you update this information kind of in an aggregate way. So you don't want it to be, but is there a way to share? I mean, obviously this screenshot of what you're showing right now could be shared in theory, right?
5: Yes, yes, absolutely. What I, everything that I have in our slides that we share in these meetings is is shareable and I'm fine with sharing this one snapshot of it. I, at this time, I don't intend to put this graph as it is on our public dashboard, but I am working on trying to figure out a way that I feel comfortable with that. Um, so if this was my, my hybrid approach right now is that I can share this now and we'll continue to work as we have, um, iterating on the best ways to share information and still um, protect confidentiality. So you can
1: share this, and she
5: just doesn't want to live I don't have it. I don't want really to get it. I will send go. it to
0: you. Thank
5: you for calling. Email actually. Really well, What's it. your email? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
5: okay. So uh, positivity. I think this. There's been a number of conversations with different folks in the community lately about positivity. Um. So I want to spend a little bit of time here. Um. I did a, a data deep dive that was. Um, really helped us understand what's happening in our community. So this is our standard positivity graph. There's nothing different about this graph and um, how it's generated um, than what we've been doing throughout the pandemic. Uh, just a reminder that the way that we have calculated positivity in Route County is that when uh, antigen testing became available, we started including antigen tests in our denominator, as well as PCR tests. The state of Colorado, as well as most other uh, folks who are, are working with COVID data use PCR testing because it is the most reliable testing that you have, um, that you feel confident that you're capturing all of those tests across various um, regions of, the, of a state, the country, and definitely across the world. We were very fortunate that we had great partnership with our clinical testing partners in Route County and we felt confident that we were capturing all, the vast majority of antigen tests that were done as soon as they were available. We believe that this is a a good way to to capture all of the testing that's really happening in our community and given sort of the distinction uh, in proportion of of how much testing is done um, as a PCR versus an antigen test. Throughout the pandemic up until very recently, this graph has largely mirrored the uh, same positivity rate for Route County that CDPHE has calculated and that changed in the last few weeks. We wanted to know why. Neither the state nor, I changed how we were calculating positivity, but the type of testing changed. So this graph now compares overall positivity in yellow. So whoops, this interactivity is a little weird. Um, So right now this is just showing PCR and overall positivity. You can see those are pretty similar up until, you know, late September when we start to see a difference between these two lines. When we add an antigen, sorry, this is weird and I have to go back and forth. This antigen positivity is the orange line. And particularly when we zoom in in the last few months, um, antigen test positivity is substantially lower than our PCR test positivity. Uh, The reason for this, it appears, is that uh, many of the schools in Route County, particularly in the Steamboat area, implemented the school surveillance testing program. So we are testing hundreds of school-age students every week who are less likely to test positive than others who are seeking testing because it is the surveillance testing where like, hey, you're here every week, we're going to test you. Um, And we are identifying some cases through that program, and the program is definitely working. Uh, And this graph really explains what we're seeing in our positivity and that there's sort of a There's been a shift in in what's happening and testing in our community um, with the rollout of that program. And so uh, there is a difference in the positivity rate that you see on CDPHE's dashboard versus what we have. What CDPHE has is much more similar to this PCR test line. Uh, So thanks for letting me get a little nerdy on this, but I'm happy to take questions if you'd like. That was really interesting.
3: Do we know how many kids are participating in that program?
5: I know one. It's in the hundreds per week, but I I don't off the top of my head know if it is closer to two to three hundred or say seven to eight hundred. Part of the reason for that is that uh, there were some uh, school in services and conferences that impacted uh, who was able to to get tested recently in some recent weeks. So it's fluctuated a little bit. uh, But. The schools should know that better than I would. Are
3: all the districts participating?
9: Or just um, Steamboat School District
5: is the only one. So it's interesting
1: the difference uh, in the positivity rates, but the trends are generally mm-hmm.
0: similar. hmm uh-huh.
5: yeah. uh, The testing started on October 9th, which you can see where that really started to drop off.
6: Well, Nicole, I think it'd be fair, it'd be fair for us to, to rephrase it. Uh, Commissioner Corbin was saying that even though the absolute rates may differ, the trend mirrors in all three measurements. It's, if it's going up in one, it's going up in the others. If it's going down in one, it's going down in the others. Is that, would you agree?
5: Yes, uh, I think that that is true. And I think this is why since we had a substantial portion of our community vaccinated, you know, starting in the summertime, this 5% threshold as something that I, I've been looking for more evidence to support that that is the most important threshold. Um, and I think that it is what's most relevant for us is to see what's happening as a trend in our positivity. And if we're a little bit over 5%, I care slightly less than if we're over 10%, right? 5% less anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so vaccination rates. Uh, we have 14 Route County residents ages 5 to 11 who have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, which is very exciting. Um, and that actually updated throughout the day today. It was one this morning. It's now 14. So that is excellent news. We're very excited uh, to see that number grow. Uh, so as you can see, I have changed some of the age cutoffs here. So the first four lines are the same as what we've had before. We have uh all ages as our denominator, so everyone in Route County, and then those 12 and older, and then those five to 11, so that newly um, newly vaccine eligible population. Uh, just a reminder, the denominator for all of these is still the 2019 State Demography Office estimate for Route County, does not use 2020 census data. When that data is available, we will update. And another reminder,
8: those percentages aren't evenly distributed as far as like the 12 to up group. The 12 to 18 group has a much lower vaccination rate than the, you know, 50 to 100 age group, so.
6: Nicole, I'm sorry, could you go back to the previous slide for just a moment? I'd like us all to digest there. We've had 19,584 Route County residents receive at least one dose of vaccine. Nobody has died in Ralph County from the vaccine. And frankly, we've, I don't think we've seen really any serious or lasting side effects. I think it just points to the overall safety of the vaccine that we've done 20,000 doses and everybody's doing just fine. Hmm.
1: You're treating that as offensive. objective data,
6: <laughs> uh, I can, yes, yeah, and I can add anecdotes. We're seeing sick people from COVID, not sick people from vaccines.
1: It's funny to think back what, at the beginning of this, these numbers are what we were talking about. We we would have achieved herd immunity by now. And this would all be behind us.
3: Well, some
1: people were talking about
3: that. Yeah, yeah we got it. Yeah,
6: I mean, yes, we're we're, we're in that, that range, but uh, we're not we're not at the eighty-five percent mark or somewhere in there, which is kind of what it was tabbed early on.
7: And,
9: you know, if you look at the statewide data, I think we're like fifth or sixth for vaccination levels for counties in the state, so.
0: On the other
1: hand, we don't live on an island either, do we? We
5: do not. We
1: mm-hmm. get a lot of people in and out.
5: Um, and so then another the piece of our, our vaccination data is that uh, vaccination rates are not uh, consistent across the county. We know that there are pockets of our, County that have higher vaccination rates than others. And um, this, when you take this in um, combination with some of the data I was presenting about incidence rates by geography, um, it tells a, a, that more complete story. As I was saying, that you know, disease transmission in our community is primarily driven by school-age residents, and primarily in areas of route County with low vaccination rates. And um, that, you know, disease transmission among school-age residents is primarily because a substantial portion of them are only now eligible for vaccination. Um, so I just wanna highlight that vaccination is key to ending this pandemic, but vaccination alone is insufficient. Uh, so Roberta talked a bit about this public health advisory and that you know, all of these uh, commitments to containment that we've been talking about throughout the pandemic still apply. Um, so just a reminder that vaccination is key, but we still need to wear a mask, monitor for symptoms, limit our gatherings, wash our hands, stay home when sick uh, and seek testing when appropriate. Uh, And that is, that is all of the data that I have today, but I'm happy to answer questions about um, other things that maybe are on our public dashboard, or if there's other questions about data.
9: Um, Thanks, Nicole, for that. Um, Brooke, since we're kind of on the topic of the importance of vaccinations, can you give us kind of a vaccination update um, um, on our clinics and where people can get vaccinated and get their child vaccinated
8: as well. We do have the pediatric formulation for the five to 11 year olds is in our community. Um, I think that we'll start to see that number rise pretty quickly on Nicole's dashboard. So I do know that some of the pediatric clinics are already holding or already have appointments for these five to 11 year olds. So that's super exciting. Um, We're gonna do some large vaccination clinics this weekend. There's one in Oak Creek on Friday, which I believe is um, completely booked, but they will be taking uh, appointments for next week. And then two large clinics in Steamboat. um, And then the Hayden clinic will be with the vaccine bus and everything is completely booked for those as well. But I, I just keep periodically checking the links and people are canceling and snatching those spots up pretty quickly. So just keep checking. Um, if you do have appointments scheduled that you will not be able to attend, if you could please let us know or cancel that so that we can open that up for other people. Um, the uptake I think is gonna be a little larger than I personally thought it was going to be. Um, we also want you to keep in mind that the Pfizer vaccine is a two dose series same 21 day interval. So with the upcoming holidays, make sure that your child is gonna be around for that second dose, or at least as close to that 21 day time period as possible. Um, And then vaccine appropriate clothing for any of these clinics that they might attend. Um, Arms or legs need to be available for the nurses. It makes our jobs a lot easier. That's all I got.
9: Yeah, particularly for the steamboat event, because we're gonna do that as a drive through events so you know making sure that you know
5: that's appropriate
9: for your child if that's not an appropriate scenario for your child then talk to your pediatrician about bringing them in so
6: and maybe we can give some reassurance to the community that we're going to how we're going to meet the demand demand is is high
8: right get vaccine. We, we also have... know that the pharmacies um like the larger big box stores are going to they should start seeing it this week um if they don't It'll be next week, Um, and I do know that City Market, Walgreens, and Walmart all have 300 doses coming to them um, for, like, first round, so that's another 900 kids that we can add to what we've already got scheduled.
0: I
6: think that's kind of to my point, is that we have an initial allotment of 600 doses here, most of which now are accounted for um, with appointments and all. Um, We have other supplies coming in, and so people are frustrated because they can't, get on the list this week. I, I think each week we'll be getting mm-hmm. several hundred more yep. doses in the yep. community. And we think we have maybe about 2,000 children in this mm-hmm. five to eleven age range. Right. So
0: yeah. Yep. I
6: think, I think we can get there mm-hmm. here in a month where everybody wants vaccine will be able to get
9: one. Right. And you know, as we saw with the data, you know, this is where we're seeing our biggest burden of disease and transmission and the faster we can get our children vaccinated and protected, you know, we can start looking at you know, um, you know, how we're looking at some of the mitigation protocols in schools and looking at transmission levels, vaccination levels, weighing those and looking at the CDPHE recommendations you know, to see if some of those mitigation guidelines or um, strategies might change. Dr. Harrington, do you have well, some this, wisdom?
6: I mean, to you know, summarize, we're at a, a high level of transmission locally in the state. Um, certainly we had hoped that we would start on the decline by now, but we're not. Uh, we've benefited in, in Colorado. Looking at the state charts to the past few months, Colorado has always stayed at right around the same rate, but we've had all these other states at much higher rates of disease. We saw the, the um, you know how sad it was in a lot of other states that couldn't handle that surge. So our vaccine rate in Colorado and other activities that we've done in Colorado probably blunted that rise. But here we are in November. Um, the modeling suggests might not actually even peak until December. We understand that this is a season, that this this virus has seasonal patterns. We've seen it before. We know that holidays create a, a jump in cases. We've got Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas. So I think we're looking at significant rates of disease transmission here, at least through February. And then I, you know, am hopeful that by February, and March, we can start to see a, a very definite current decline kind of getting down to a level where we are now. Um, and yeah, you know, you kind of you, you look at, at our rate and you ask um, a little bit why we haven't had maybe more deaths locally. We had 19 deaths last year from COVID-19 for this year. Um, of course, I think, you know, there's a lot of things are done, but two things stand out in my mind. One is vaccinations, right? We started the beginning of the year. Made a huge difference. Case in point, look at our long-term care facilities. Half of our deaths in our county roughly were due to deaths in the long-term care facilities last year. This year, we've had one death of an out state person who moved in and was not fully vaccinated before they acquired it last spring. Vaccinations made a, a big difference. The other thing that's made a big difference is this monoclonal antibody treatment. Um, we are very fortunate to be one of the um, almost a minority of locations in the state that's had that available from the beginning of it. Um, I think we all um, owe some appreciation to the hospital, so I feel the crew there because I know that they maintain a commitment and staff and our resources to that to our community. And many of the counties in the state have not had that. The, uh, the monoclonal antibody therapies, especially high-risk populations can prevent 67% of admissions and deaths for, for high-risk people. Clearly been been a big big change. Um, my, my colleagues, in fact, kind of comment about a paradoxical approach by some people. Um, some people don't want to get the vaccine because they don't want to put stuff in them. But they're getting a lot more stuff from the, from the monoclonal antibody therapy. Um, you know people are excited that monoclonal antibody therapies can prevent 67 percent of severe uh, cases of death the vaccines up to 95 percent at least initially um, the monoclonal antibody therapies have been around less not as long as the vaccines and nor have we used them as many people as we have the vaccines but we kind of see that that paradox and acceptance which plays with all these other factors that go into people's acceptance of and you know, recommended preventive uh, measures and treatments.
2: Dr. Um, what is the cost of uh, a course of treatment of that model?
6: A lot. Um, I should have looked it up. I've had that question in my mind too. I've heard it in the past too, but it's many thousands of dollars.
2: As um, opposed to an $85 so, dollar vaccine. Exactly. And get it for free. free. And is it the
8: technology? It's a free vaccine, free. Free. yeah. All right. Well, you know. to, to the person, yeah. We don't t- take those costs. Even if you're uninsured, the vaccine is covered. So, twenty-one hundred yeah, dollars per infusion,
6: approximately. I don't know how many infusions a person might need to know. They just get one. Usually just one. It's a um, one-time deal. It's um, I mean, anecdotally, i have seen patients who are very sick at high risk, and uh, they've really turned around quickly. So we, our community has benefited from those measures. I think, and that's why our uh, Death rate this year has been lower so uh, and, and there's other treatments in that matter too when we get people in the hospital we're doing a lot of things different to um keep them alive so all these things together have you know played into um you know a better picture but i you know my my healthcare colleagues are fatigued they're, they're tired of this ongoing struggle um, and um, it wears and we're all aware that you know healthcare is one of many um, industry areas where we're struggling to get people to stay in and, and fill needed jobs.
0: I speculated some
1: months ago that uh,
3: we love it when you speculate
1: <laughs> that, that uh, unvaccinated people were at a higher and higher risk of infection uh, because the virus has fewer and fewer people to look for. It seems inescapable but Math, the statistics that are being presented here, we have more people being vaccinated and yet we have more people getting sick among the unvaccinated. Is that a rational message to send to unvaccinated people that you are today at a higher risk than you ever have been during the pandemic?
6: It's a different bug from what we faced mm-hmm. last year, right? right? I mean, This Delta variant is multiple times more infectious um, than what we saw before.
9: Yeah. yeah, and CDPHE, in fact, did some of that modeling data to show the relative risk of unvaccinated, you know, becoming a case of COVID, um, becoming a hospitalization due to COVID, and for, you know, looking at the relative risk if you're vaccinated versus unvaccinated, and, you know, it's still even in the face of the Delta variant, um, the um, vaccinated folks fare far better than the unvaccinated folks.
1: And then uh, you know, I think you stated earlier that you're getting ready to issue a public health advisory uh, yeah. at the, after this meeting.
9: Yeah, so um, we'll put it in our press release um, for you know just covering all of the points that we discussed today um, of the available treatments, the monoclonal antibodies, getting vaccinated vaccines are now available for five to 11. All of these strategies, you know, we still need to be heating, um, washing your hands. It still appalls me that people, you know, don't wash their hands sometimes.
1: So, So Roberta, I appreciate that you're doing that, but how would the public distinguish between what you're calling a public health advisory now and what we've been putting out in press releases in the past?
9: Right, and they're very similar. Um, a lot of this is you know, being put out in response to ways that we can prevent hospitalizations and in the context of decreasing hospitalizations and decreasing that burden on our statewide system um, of having people seek care uh, for COVID. So. Yeah.
1: Not sure that you're asking the
9: question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a friendly remi- reminder. I mean, it's it's true, and that's truly tr- what the CDPHE health advisory was, is you know, kind of bring it up again um, in the face of this data and um, the surge of hospitalizations.
6: It it's fair to say that
0: we won't
6: we'll be putting those out every week. They'll be prepared in advance with references. And- mm-hmm different from the weekly press releases.
9: And also it's a step that CDPHE kind of took as well um, instead of going to you know mandated um, mitigation strategies such as you know capacity um, mm-hmm. restrictions um, looking at events and restaurants so it's it's kind of a step um, in one direction, but not in a mandated way. Reminding people that gathering large gatherings
3: probably aren't the best thing. So,
0: so now let me ask
1: you the really hard question: <clears throat> What would you say to those people <clears throat> that would say public health should be creating some mandates? It's a new restrictions right
9: well you know and my belief is you kind of have to have the whole um, layering strategy Mm -hmm. right so when we um, first had the dial framework all of that worked together so we had mask use we had limited capacities we had um you know no large gatherings so you can't really do one without all of them and I do think that that is a pretty difficult step to take, um, in light of vaccinations. And vaccinations are really, you know, our number one strategy um, to end this pandemic.
0: You did it, Mr. question. Did
3: I?
7: Yeah, in <laughs> <laughs> no, a no, no way that you and I understood that. I do I, Swiss, I
3: cheese, have, Swiss cheese. Swiss <laughs> cheese. I have a question on that. Um, you know, I, when you were coming in, I mentioned that I'm wearing a mask because I've had multiple COVID experience over the past couple of weeks and so uh or past week and so um you know I Went and looked at the CDC website to see what recommendations were, and it was that I wear a mask mm-hmm. for seven days until I receive a negative test. Well, fourteen days if I don't get tested, mm-hmm. even though I'm vaccinated. And I don't know if that information is widely known, or if you feel like that is important for people to know. It it um, is, and we do
9: share that when we do our contact
3: tracing. Yeah, I know so I received zero phone calls from the contact tracers, so not. County, these were not exposures from right. residents. Right. So, um, but for what it's worth, I don't know if that information is widely known.
0: Yeah.
9: Yeah. Well, we can put that in the in advisory.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so back to the advisory.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you're talking about one advisory for the county, and I know that you're in regular contact with the school districts, talking with them about their mitigation strategies, mm-hmm. and their disease problems. Um, Is there a situation where you could uh, see issuing a specific advisory Mm -hmm. for a specific
0: school district?
9: Yeah, um, you know, and we've also worked on um, how can we get out PSAs to remind parents not to send sick kids to school. That seems to be the biggest issue that has been happening, unfortunately, where a sick child goes to school. And, or a child who um, got tested, test results haven't come back yet, the child gets sent to school and they're COVID positive. Um, so we are working with our school nurses to record some of those PSAs, um, you know, keeping the kids home from school and, and those messages as well. So, you know, some of, some of the, um, our mitigation strategies for school—it's it, a very, um, uh, I would like to say controlled, but maybe not controlled <laughs> environment where you do, you know, there is one building that they're in, and there are engineering controls that you can do within that space, as opposed to your general, you know, person that's going out and and going place to place. So some of those strategies. Are a little different, but we do um, continue to talk to our superintendents about putting those strategies um, to work. Is it appropriate or can we even use the Route
1: County Alerts system to put out the advice of the public health advisor? Really looking for ways yeah. to be able Just, to elevate.
9: I know we did that early
3: um, when we I changed we tried to keep it leveled yeah. so that people didn't ignore Around, it But we haven't done it. Like a while. Yeah,
9: because it's just like an, in, like an outdoor air quality, you know, that was kind of the same vein um, as, you know, what CDPHE's kind of thought process and issuing um, both state and local advisories, where, you know, let's follow format of like outdoor air quality advisories. So,
3: I
2: think if we told Roberta that we would like to do
3: that,
1: that would probably help
3: (laughs) us. I I I support you, Tim.
2: And I'm also in favor, you know, people need a reminder, they're getting comfortable.
9: Yeah. We can make it short and sweet for that. And just have a link. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all. And, uh,
1: Back to the presentation you made down in Denver, um, I'm not surprised that it was well received. I think that the information you guys have been provided to us with these various graphs and snapshots is really, really helpful so that we can at least claim we were informed even if we aren't totally informed. So, well, it's no fault of yours. Tim, I
3: think it's worth noting too, I mean the community deserves credit for that as well. I mean, the reason we gotten to this level is because the community demanded that to a large degree mm-hmm. and um, I mean I think we're one of the smaller counties to have a full-time epidemiologist position. I think um, people have been really interested in having that information since day one. And it's really great that we've gotten to a point where we can keep up with that but you know without that demand we wouldn't necessarily have done it either
2: so. Well, and it's, it's interesting to think about the fact as you both have mentioned to me this didn't exist. No. <laughs> <laughs> None <laughs> of
3: these people were here. <laughs> diet,
2: <laughs> pandemic and, and to look at where you've gotten us and the system that you put in place, I take great pride in that. I want you to know that.
3: We're all right. And I'm glad Dr. Harrington. I do I know. He may be
2: questioning his decisions. Don't yeah, I can tell you what didn't work.
0: So.
1: <laughs> These people were all leading quiet anonymous lives working for the Daily Planet. Thank you, you guys. We appreciate your yeah.
0: work yeah. so. <laughs>
1: Anything else? Thanks for right. Dr. Harrington. Appreciate it very much. Great. Right. Scott, let talk
0: sanitation. You're kind of part of all the yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Are you like of the big guys? All right, Gio. I you to <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to join us, Gio. join us. <laughs> More subject matter expertise.
10: Oh, you guys? Good. So nice to in. see you. Yeah. <laughs> to good. to This for here. Jim's
11: back in the building. <laughs> back in business. <laughs> what do we got, Scott? All right, um, I believe we have uh, Mr. Adam Summers on board and you can hear us and that's great news. Um, so I'll just uh, just read off the agenda communication form. Um, in light of needed upgrades and maintenance needs to facilities in Pittsburgh and Milner and potential funding availability, we've invited Mr. Summers Um, to uh, present an overview of options for different types of systems, uh, talk about permitting requirements, timelines, funding mechanisms, and hopefully a little bit about logical next steps to make those upgrades. Uh, The core of our problem at those facilities is the fact that we have lagoon systems. uh, The fact that those lagoons are lined with clay and that clay is uh, relatively thin Um, just six inches. And so we uh, are having trouble meeting seepage requirements. That's been called out by the state um, in Pittsburgh, not the case in Milner. However, um, this summer we started having problems with uh, meeting uh, requirements for biological oxygen demand. And I'll let Adam talk about that a little bit more. That might prompt us to look at pumping the lagoons in Milner. Um, that's an expensive proposition, and so uh, given funding opportunities, this is this time to look at uh, replacing the facility in Milner as well. So with that, um, and we also have Giovanni Romero here, who uh, is the general manager at Morrison Creek Water and Sanitation. Uh, he's been working with Adam over the last couple of years on their new facility, and uh, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the solutions might look similar to what Morrison Creek is working on. And I can let Adam expand on that as
12: well. So Adam. Right, thanks for the introduction, Scott. Yeah, so uh, just a brief introduction. My name again is Adam Summers. I am a licensed civil engineer who specializes in uh, small wastewater treatment plants. So I'm out of Denver which is a great location because all I do are small communities within Colorado. So I'm, I'm central, but most of my customers are along the I-70 corridor or in Southern Colorado. Um, I don't work for big systems because that's uh, not my expertise. My expertise are how to develop the most cost-effective uh, wastewater treatment plants um, on a small scale. So uh, one of my customers is Morrison Creek. Uh, they have a 50-year-old uh, treatment plant that has far exceeded uh, its, its design uh, life. So I've been working with the district, Steve Colby previously and with uh, Giovanni once he joined the district on how to plan and fund the project. Uh, so going back, we started by looking for funding sources. We have secured one funding source for that project. Uh, We're seeking others, and I'll get into this in a moment, but as you may have seen, the infrastructure uh, bill was passed this weekend, which is going to have tremendous ramifications uh, for this program. Um, I read this morning that there was $688 million uh, just for Colorado in water wastewater projects uh, such as Morrison Creek and then the two route county systems we'll be talking about in a minute. So just to wrap up on Morrison Creek, the design uh, will be done in the next few weeks and if everything aligns, we, we could go into construction in the spring of 2022 when the weather permits. Switching to the systems Scott um, has prepared to talk about today, Milner and Peeberg, uh, those are, are much smaller than Morrison Creek, although there are lots of par- parallels. For reference, Morrison Creek is rated for 350,000 gallons a day. Uh, the other two systems, I believe, are closer to 20,000 gallons a day. So to put them in perspective, we're less than 10% the size. So the treatment strategy in general would would be similar, a a mechanical plant. I find those so much more advantageous over lagoons. Lagoons are a 50 to 75-year-old technology that work in some circumstances. Um, They don't work well in cold cold weather, which is why in the year 2021, they're really not great. solutions for a environment like Route County. So frequently I go throughout Colorado, replacing lagoons when the need be, as Scott mentioned, the liners are compromised or other issues with mechanical plants. Mechanical plants are more expensive than lagoons, not exponentially, but they provide so much more benefits and flexibility, particularly as limits evolve over time, a mechanical plant will be far more capable of meeting future limits than a lagoon. So perhaps if I could pull up some, just a couple couple photos, if I could share my screen. Let's see if I can
7: figure
0: this out quickly.
12: For, for a system such as your size, I've been really able to, can, can everyone see this, this photo? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, this is a project we did in Telluride, um, and, and this has become very extremely popular in the size range of Milner and Peeberg. It, it wouldn't be a good fit for Giovanni's um, facility, just because once you get into his size range, there's more cost-effective ways to do it. But for these size systems, what I really like is the treatment equipment already comes installed in these connect shipping containers. So these two containers are fabricated off-site in a warm warehouse while the construction company does the site work. And you, (laughs) you drop these containers on and within a matter of weeks, you'll have a functioning wastewater treatment plant. So it cuts out a ton of the really expensive costs in terms of site work um, and site preparation. And I believe the the Telluride customer, he couldn't find a solution under 2.2 million. And and I believe this project came in about 1.2 million at the end of the day. So we're able to shave all those costs by removing the expensive tasks that occur in expensive areas like the Steamboat Springs area and moves them into a, where, a, a warm warehouse where the work can happen year round.
0: Yeah. I was afraid of this. Now I can't go back to Well, we got a second? Geo he says that your plants rated for
2: 350,000 gallons daily. Correct. What do you really see?
10: Right now, we treat about 60,000 average, um, except with, with the peak times when we, in springtime, we have all the infiltration, INI, so we get about 110,000. Um, so it basically doubles our, uh, you know, the average um, during the month of April, May.
2: So that 350,000 gallons would have been if your system was fully built out, Does running that large plant on a reduced scale cause you any problems?
10: Uh, At this moment it does because we, there is no way, we have one main pool where we collect everything and then it kind of goes in in sequence to compartments. of that pool. However, the design that we're working on with uh, Mr. Summers, if it has two trains that could be operated um, at different times. Oh, so, I see. Yeah. You can
2: take one off
10: of So we can take one completely offline and keep it, you know, basically without use while the other one operates and then switch them for maintenance. And when there gives you your efficiency. Correct. Okay. So right now, we don't have that capacity. We cannot even maintain our current facility because we can't stop processing. Right. So, with the design that we've been working on, we'll have a half and half. So, we can take a system completely offline. So, do maintenance on. Do maintenance. We don't have to waste energy. Um, you know, the, the pumps that will run that side of the pool um, will, will be basically turned off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we gain a lot of more efficiency, a lot better maintenance, and, um, you know, the, the, the capacity of maintaining. Each side, whenever we need to.
12: Thank you for that. Sorry, to interrupt. Oh, no, that gave me a moment to hone in my AV skills. So, uh, anyhow, um, you know, being a professional engineer, um, I'm not married to any technology. Happy to look and, and will look at all the different available options. Just the one I showed you works really well in, in the size range because it avoids all the conventional problems you have with constructing a treatment plant on site. And can you can you talk a little bit about
11: the um, comparative operational costs for a system like that compared to lagoons? I know that most of our costs um, with operating those lagoons come from the aerators and electricity. Are we looking at a higher operational cost with the mechanical system? Hmm,
12: that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say energy wise, probably comparable. Uh, this will require some more operator involvement because lagoons are as, as simple as you can get. You know, it's just plug and play and it's on or it's off. Uh, this does require the attention of an operator, but that those operational controls are what lets you get much, much cleaner water coming out of the plant.
0: And
11: how much space, um, you know, we, we have plenty of space. We have two and a half acres mm-hmm. uh, or more. Um, how much space uh, would one of these mechanical systems require if we're talking
12: about 10 or 20,000 gallons per day? So this project right here, these two containers uh, is an 8,000 gallon per day system. Um, Yours may actually at 20,000 now may actually be half the size because one option I have is to um, put the concrete tankage underground. The top of the concrete tank is flush with grade. And then all you need to do is take one container and drop it on top of that concrete tank. So really when you're done, it could all you may see as you're driving by is a 10 foot wide by 40 foot long
0: container. Useful life, Adam. Yeah.
12: Um, I, I typically say 30 to 40 years. Uh, it depends upon the quality of the operator. Uh Morrison Creek got 50 years out of their plant. Um, so yeah, we're, we're talking decades here. And then uh, uh, these mechanical plants
1: uh, produce uh, like a compressed block of material that needs to be taken to the landfill. Is that correct?
12: That's correct. So ascent the, the plant can treat anything organic, anything that's inorganic. Uh, will, will have to be hauled off. Uh, but for a system, you know, in the 20,000 gallons, we're talking about a, a, a hauler truck coming, uh, probably a 3000 gallon truck, maybe once a month, once every couple months, just sucking out the stuff from the bottom of the tank that the treatment plant can't treat for. And we'd have to talk with a city of steamboat, but usually it's just deposited at a larger facility that has the ability to, to treat for that.
1: That type of waste. So Scott, can we assume that our local landfill would be able to accept this waste?
11: Um, I assume so. And you know, as you know, Pittsburgh is located about halfway between the Milner landfill and the county landfill. So we have two viable options. Um, but that would, you know, we need to confirm that, but uh, I believe that they'll
1: both take that type of waste. So, Adam, with a, with a lagoon system, even if all the power goes out for days on end, the wastewater will still drain to the lagoon system and you don't have an immediate problem. Would this system require uh,
12: a, a generator
1: backup system?
12: Yep. That's, that's a, uh, so, um, one of my tasks is the CDPHE has had massive design regulations on all the components. And one of the requirements for plants these days is is a backup power uh, generator. So every plant I design has a secondary backup generator uh, that can provide
10: days of of backup power. So sorry, any new application for any piece of infrastructure for water, wastewater now is required to have Secondary problem.
0: Makes sense. And then, um,
1: it's probably a question for Scott. We would have some kind of a reclamation effort with our lagoon ponds if we decided to go in this direction.
11: Yeah, that's correct. So we would have to pump the lagoons. Um, We need to find uh, somewhere to um, dispose of that material, whether it's at a landfill. Uh, my understanding is there, uh, there's a land farming opportunity that we have in South Route. Um, that would be a cheaper route, um, and you know I assume that we would probably want to fill in those bases. Uh, we've talked about uh, that perhaps there's an opportunity there to um, put in solar panels, or uh, certainly we have the space uh, to do that, and I think that the horizon is you know, pretty good for a project like that um, in both facilities. Uh, So that's something else, you know, we would have to look into. Um, And, you know, I I guess the question for me at this point is, um, you know, what are our logical next steps? And when we started this process, back before I was in this position, I think it started with the basis of design report. And that report recommended based on um, cost. And then also based on the technology, which I think has come a long way in a pretty short amount of time that, uh, the best idea would be at least cost would be to replace clay liners with HDPE liners. And it kind of feels like at this point, um, I'm not sure if we'd get the same result with the basis of design report. Um, but, um, to me, that was the logical next step. Did you, Agree or Do you have any thoughts about that, Adam?
12: I do. I do uh, because the, the CDPHE has, has this group which quarterbacks all the funding opportunities, which were significantly augmented this weekend with the passage of, of the infrastructure bill. So what you do to the seat, what you do typically do is you prepare something called a P, PNA, Project needs assessment, and that's a conceptual uh, design where you look at different options. You know, do we look at upgrading the lagoons, or do we look at a mechanical plant? Which you know, a, a lagoon may cost X, and a mechanical plant may cost Y and then you talk about what your preference is and you go through cost estimates and the CDPHE has a whole checklist of of what should be included with the PNA. And what what I love about doing the PNA as a first step is you kill two birds with one stone. A, you, you you obtain the first of two design approvals from the CDPHE. The second one, is you have a defined project that that group at the CDPHE works with you to obtain funding. So you know the executive summary of that PNA says that Route County for Milner would like to see a containerized system at a estimated cost of X dollars. Once that document is submitted, you, you have a big meeting with all the stakeholders and they say, okay, at 1.4 million, um, you know, what, what would Route County uh, bring? What, what is available from the state revolving fund? What is available from DOLA in terms of grants? Um, you know, what other programs like the USDA m- would be worthwhile pursuing. So you've got your defined project and then you can go out
6: uh, hunting for that money. And uh, regarding funding, um, I've been
11: talking to Commissioner Corrigan and then also you a little bit about um, if some of these uh, funding sources can be used as matching funding um, for loans and I think you had some clarity uh, regarding that that we talked about earlier.
12: Yeah, so, so Scott had sent me a, uh, actually no, the CDPHE sent me, it was like a Q&A of ARPA funding. And there's two statements in there that talk about the inability to match ARPA funding with other sources. I received clarity from the CDPHE group that quarterbacks the funding. And he stated that that was on the program level, which is that the state of Colorado can't use the ARPA funding to match other sources that may be out there. But on a project level, such as the two we're discussing, those sections didn't apply. That we could still take, uh, we could still use different pots of money, which in fact, the state really likes to see you use different sources. Um, to match funds. And and there's some really great programs that that are easy to obtain. So for example, we we did this with Morrison Creek to fund the PNA, which is DOLA has something called um, an EIAF administrative grant. This thing is great. It's a one-page application. Um, You submit it to the DOLA uh, case manager, which is Greg Winkler for your area. Uh, you request um, the grant from DOLA would be twenty five thousand dollars. The system needs to match it on a dollar per dollar. So for fifty thousand dollars, DOLA would contribute twenty five, and the systems would contribute twenty five thousand. So you're paying fifty cents on the dollar. And you know if you had that fifty thousand dollars, that would uh, fund a, a significant part of the PNA. At 50 cents on the dollar.
0: Uh, Can I
3: ask about the benefit of using, thinking of using the state revolving loan fund versus, you know, doing like what we've done where we lend our own funds out to other funds within the county? Do you know what I mean? Because we've done that where we lend money to what the airport, maybe, or. Why would we do that? Because the revolving fund
7: is a loan, oh, it's not great, that
11: interest. No, and and okay. and what we did prior before things kind of fell apart is we uh, and I'm not sure how the basis of the design and the PNA were paid for, mm-hmm. but um, we had uh, 50% Gola and then 50% okay. low interest loan, which was the state revolving
3: fund.
11: State revolving fund,
3: yeah. Okay, but you don't necessarily know the answer to
12: no okay and particularly with this infrastructure bill that's coming and, and my only frame of reference to to what this infrastructure bill will look like is from a program and, and and you may be familiar from 13 12 or 13 years ago the aara program uh that that happened during the uh, financial crisis uh in the late 2000s where the srf program wasn't exclusively loans it was also grants okay so i
0: so i suspect
12: that if if the county does pursue the srf program that it's highly likely there will be grant funding available
3: okay that's helpful yeah because just at a glance the money that's in the infrastructure bill it appears to just go to the revolving fund it doesn't look like there's other dollars right
12: right and and just because we do the srf does not mean you need to fund uh, the entire project with it so if, if hypothetically we're talking of a 1.5 million dollar project you know the the dola ei full eif grant is up to a million dollars you could if you get that dola eif grant for a million you may just be looking at a srf loan of, of 500 dollars
3: so i just to make sure I understand correctly, Scott, you're suggesting that we identify a way to do a PNA on Peter and Miller. So essentially, so we're set up for whatever kind of funding sources might be out there, and we can know how much we need and be prepared to apply for those, even when they cut down the pipe, or potentially use some of our local dollars as well.
6: Yeah, that's correct. And one of the questions
11: was, um, you know, could we use some of the funding? that we have or is becoming available um, for matching funds? Does that other half have to come from the system? It's an enterprise fund, or could we blend other dollars in that to offset? Because if we get a loan, there's we're gonna have to pay it off, of course, and there's gonna be an increase in the fees. And so what we're trying to do is offset that as much as we can with uh, whatever funding we have available.
3: I think we have to know what the rules are. I mean, there are rules for enterprises, right? You can't just inject them with general fund money or other money. I don't know the rules. Yeah,
11: I don't know the the rules either. So we definitely, of course, have to
10: figure that out, work with the accountants. Yeah, I know one of the rules for enterprises, you can't use public tax money. But maybe other ones,
2: yeah, okay. Yeah,
3: because
2: we used to supplement the enterprise fund out of the general fund. But there is a point.
1: I'm thinking that we supplemented the airport, but we did it by virtue of uh, road and bridge reserve funds that we loaned, which is what I was talking about. Yeah.
11: So, um, there's some other uh, funding sources out there that we didn't use when we were going through uh, this the first time. I think it was Colorado Water Association.
1: Colorado Water Colorado. No.
11: Nope. Oh. Yeah, it was the Colorado Rural Water Association, I believe. Um, and I and I, the name of the contact is escaping me now. But Adam, are you familiar with uh,
12: that at all? I'm familiar with the, the Colorado Rural Water Association. Uh, I'm a member and I, I go to their uh, conventions. They they typically provide um technical assistance um through training and and, and so on i I haven't heard of them awarding grants directly so you you and i can have a a discussion offline and um tell me a little bit more about the program you're talking about and i can can research in that
1: adam i want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned about Uh, increased need for manpower with these mechanical plants. Are we talking about a a full-time individual, one FTE to manage one of these plants or half an FTE or what do you
12: think? No, um, most of my projects um, require, once it's up and running, once we've reached a steady state and it's fully operational, they require an operator on site a couple hours a day, a couple times a week. So most of them in this size range, the 20,000 gallons are operated either by a a contract operations company. They're a consultant that manages dozens of these uh, plants and the operator drives around throughout the day visiting them. Or the second option is um, a lot of operators moonlight. Uh, they may have a full time job at a large facility, and then they will moonlight and operate a plant like this on the side. And I take it
1: nowadays, this kind of a plant, a lot of the operations can be done remotely.
12: Yeah, this, 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 I, I, I love this equipment for, for a lot of reasons. Um, one reason why I, I, I especially love it is it even comes with a cellular modem configured and ready to go. So you, you drop this thing on site, you plug in the power and it has external communications with the internet automatically. So for example, if there's an alarm, it sends it automatically over the internet to the operator's phones, they see exactly what's going on. And it works two ways, the operator can look on his phone and, and clear, uh, clear the, the, the error. Also, another thing that they could do is they could sit at their desktop computer and output the records they need to file to the CDPHE this month. So it really does streamline the, the operational process.
2: So Adam,
12: is that a SCADA system then? It, SCADA is, it is correct, but there's no need to do an external SCADA system. It's, it's, it's just a couple hundred dollar uh, cell phone modem that gets plugged into the computer and it's just a communication link. But yes, SCADA is exactly right. We have a similar
11: system, maybe not quite as sophisticated um, in our water treatment plant at Pittsburgh. Um, And then uh, another question um, that's come up is um, what's the level of certification for the operator? Uh, For a lagoon system, it's just a D certification. Um, A system, a mechanical system requires a higher level with qualification, but the contractor that we work with, Scott Smith, has well beyond you know, what he needs to operate a system like that. Still a learning curve, because I don't think he has other systems like that on his route, but um, he would be capable to step in and,
12: and do that. And these systems nowadays, the SCADA system, also goes back to the equipment manufacturer. So for the Telluride system, the first couple months, typical with every project is you got to get, get the settings dialed in, is the equipment manufacturer was a big part of telling us what settings to modify because they could see exactly how the plant was performing while at their computer in Canada. Uh,
1: One last question I have out of this, is there uh, any kind of an economy of scale in terms of the, the PNA and then the subsequent
0: installation by doing two systems at once? Yes. Um, Gio, do you have funding for your project? Last
3: time we talked to you, you were still working on
0: So that. we
10: have secure funding from USDA. Um, we're we continuing to search other ways to fund the project. Um, just as you're dealing with the Fed is a whole different level of, of, of compliance. Yeah. Um, so, even though we have gone through the entire process, they have awarded us the funds. Um, we're, we want to have a project, um, we're going to go through bidding and all the, the process, and we want to have a project shovel ready by January. Um, so, if the funding becomes available through the state in CDPHE, we may rather go that way. If we can get more grants. Uh, currently, the USDA has a us $1.7 million in grants. In grants? In grants. So, it's pretty generous. However, in um, $6.3 million in loans. In
2: loans. Yeah. And, yeah, they like their loans.
10: They love the loans, and you are to spend the loan first. Yeah. So, if you're under budget for some reason, which I most likely won't be, um, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> uh, even though, um, you know, if, if you're under budget for some reason, they will cut that from the grant, not from the loan. And if you get funding sources from somebody else, that's kind of downfall of working through USDA is that you're kind of locked in with them. So if you happen to grab another grant from CDPHE or somewhere else, they'll take it from, they'll take it away from that grant awarded. So they kind of lock you in. So even though we, we're, we don't want to gamble it, we, since we have secured this funding, um, but we're going to keep our eyes open for other alternatives. Yeah. And your
3: total is about 8 million? Is that we're what we're thinking down? about
10: 8 million, okay. that's what we budgeted. Okay, thank
0: you.
11: And what kind of rate increase are you looking at with the funding that you have
10: today? Oh, so like we just concluded our um rate study. Uh and we're looking at a 40, maybe 50 to 60 percent increase in rates. Yeah, it's 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 uh, significant, but the district has historically kept low rates for too long and deferred work for yeah. too long. Yeah. Uh, 50-year-old infrastructure that basically has not had major upgrades and and uh, a dying wastewater plant. so.
3: I know um, you planning to maintain the capacity of that because I know part of the question has been, there's just not as much development out there as that.
10: Thing. There I hasn't been, been in for the, a few years, but in the last, Two years we have seen oh, wow. significant increase. Uh, I mean, uh, I would say 200% last year yeah. in, in development in station. Um, and the, the sales of lots has gone through the roof in 2022, in 2021. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I can't remember the numbers, but they were significant. So you think um, it makes sense. So I think that, and you know, and there's proposed projects, schema, and, and which we never know what's going to happen, but they're always threatening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's an opportunity, not a threat. (laughs) But, you know, we hold the largest wastewater treatment plant in Rob County, not counting the city. Um, And we have miles and thousands of feet of infrastructure in the ground ready to serve. So um, uh, our fees are gonna to have to increase significantly to be able to cover for our loans. And would that be your tap fee as well? Our tap fees will go up as well. May I ask, what are you charging for a tap fee? We charge $7,000 for sewer and $9,000 for water. Uh, they will go up to $10,000 each.
0: It's
10: not crazy.
11: No. And yeah, if you compare it to, I'm not sure if you know,
10: in comparison to the city of
11: Steamboat,
10: you know? Yeah, no, so I've done a, a comparison through not only the city of Steamboat, but Ocricaden, mm-hmm. Eagle, Silverthorn. I mean, because I'm preparing also my, I gotta do a, a public presentation for my great hearing. Um, so I have done uh, extensive research on comparing our system with similar systems to include city of Denver uh, and, and when we, bring our new fees will be on par with most systems. Uh, you know, I know we have amount um, of water here that charges less, but they still have a lot to work to do as far as their CIP, the capital improvements plan. So we have developed pretty good uh, capital improvements last year, which gave us an accurate amount of, of how much money we're gonna have to, have to spend in the next 20 years.
1: So, from our perspective here, uh, you just outlined what I think would be the next logical step, which would be to pursue this PNA. Is that
3: correct?
1: Right. Which would be one
3: PNA or two PNAs, or I mean, is it in one package?
11: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it's they're two different enterprise funds. Yeah. Um, Probably two different separate permits, so I would expect it would be. Okay. Two separate PNAs.
1: Okay. And Phippsburg remains the more pressing
11: issue. Yes, because of the compliance. Although, you know, now we're in a situation where we have to pump those lagoons. And we could pump the lagoons and kick the can down the road with the facility. Um, but it, I think to me, it just depends on um, how much it's going to cost to dispose of that waste and whether it goes to a landfill. Of course, we have a landfill that's very close to Milner or uh, if we land farm. So I think that that's kind of a separate deal is we need to figure out what the costs are there. Um, And then I think move forward with the PNA for Phippsburg.
1: So just talking about Phippsburg, if I understand this correctly, we would make this one page application to DOLA for $25,000. and Either we, Route County or the Phippsburg Enterprise would have to come up with the other twenty five thousand in cash to match it, and that would start the process.
11: Right, and I'm not sure. I mean, we would need a cost estimate um, for the PNM. I'm not sure it would be fifty thousand dollars, but um, I wouldn't think it would be over fifty thousand.
7: In and so, you, you know, use your total. With uh, no, total. Total. Yeah. Do you think you can do both plans
11: for it? Well, I, I think it has to be separate.
2: Right. Um, but you're still thinking that you get the two PNAs. I think or, it's going to be two separate grant requests too. Okay. Each as much yeah. as 50000
11: $50, yeah. So it could be up to 100000 Right. And I have to follow our policies as far as, you know, depending on the cost going up for bid and, and
1: uh, all of that as well. But yeah. There's really no argument that we can make here against doing just that, at least for Pittsburgh. Right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes
3: sense to me. And especially as we're looking at the face of significant amounts of money that could become available for these types of projects, it, it makes sense for us to be, right yeah.
0: to yes.
1: yes. So what do you need from us in order to go? Well,
11: <laughs> well I, I think I think we're ready to go. We need to put together um, an RFP to get these PNAs done. and. And you know that basis of design report that I was talking about—that was used, you know, in the PNA. It's kind of the same thing. Um, so uh, I think we just uh, proceed. We still have
1: thinking to do, a lot of thinking to do about how those enterprise zones participate on the front end and how things play out in terms of rates in the long run.
11: Yes. And then, you know, we have a that low interest loan is still active. Um, potentially, we could still tap into that to help pay for this BNA. And I scheduled to talk uh, with somebody um, from CDPHE about that. Austin, I can't remember his last name, um, about that, what the potential is. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts, but
1: one last one that consideration. Sure, that we ever got squared away with the railroad in terms of our access? Or was that a water? That was a water supply issue, wasn't it? Not yeah, so
11: I think water. that I think that they uh, replaced the steel pipe that went underneath the railroad. Yeah. And but then
1: it, it wouldn't affect this process. No. Okay, good. Yeah. I
2: was worried about the railroad. yeah. Scott, would you be able to direct me someplace where I could do some reading on land park? Um, I can do that.
1: I'm just curious.
3: <laughs> um, I guess my question still stands though about these state loan programs versus loaning versus the county loaning. I just don't know what the benefits of each would be. And I don't know if it creates, I mean, it's not like the money doesn't exist to be able do
1: that, And I don't know what the decision was in the past to do that versus, I just have no idea. Well, one thing I think's interesting is Adam pointed out CDPHE has a quarterback that helps us navigate all this stuff.
11: Um, yes.
2: So, and I'll get more details about that. Oh, there's gonna be a ton of small districts trying to do the same thing. Oh, yeah. So well, was, quarterbacking could be from afar.
1: Well, it was, it was interesting, Adam, mean, it is really exciting. I think you quoted $688 million for Colorado, which at the end of the day, I mean, that, while that's a lot of money. I, it, I,
12: is. And, and <laughs> it, it is. And it is, and a number of my other customers in, in similar circumstances, uh, have started me preparing the PNA and similar documents, anticipating that this money would be coming, so that they were teed up. So when it is available, because as we saw with the uh, funding 12 years ago, the projects that were shovel ready got the money. So um, you know, we've been
11: kind of moving forward under the assumption that we're looking at probably in the neighborhood of 1.5 million to install a system like this. And uh, I'm not sure if that's including the remediation of the lagoons and disposal of the waste. Um, are in your opinion, are we kind of in the right ballpark for doing all
12: of that? You know, the, the, the 1.5 million certainly sounds right for the mechanical treatment component of the project because I'm I'm comparing it to what it costs to do the Telluride project last year, Uh, but that would not include the mitigation of the existing lagoon. Um, Scott, I could talk offline, I I do have some options. I did something at a a similar project uh, down in Florissant, Colorado, um, that was really cost effective on uh, how to manage buy the solids in the lagoon. So uh, the next time you and I talk, I can, I can tell you what I did at, at that project, which was really cost-effective. Well, the advantage for
1: us in terms of thinking about this, we have to do it, right? Okay. Bottom line, it's, it's not a question of if you know, that we want to do this. We really have to do it, let's right. figure out what it costs, figure out how to pay for it. Okay. And-
2: Rates may need to increase because some of the funding sources will be tied to
0: competitive
10: rate. Yes, structure. So get, a long get, the ready time for that feedback they will tell you you have to do a rate study to adjust your rates because they will definitely fund projects. They will not fund low rates.
1: I recall Route County telling the town of Hayden something quite similar to that. <laughs> I
0: actually remember <laughs> Dola telling us that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, any other questions?
1: I'm good, sir. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate
12: it. Yeah, thank you guys. And if you have any more questions, just let Scott know, and he and I can work work on them. That have okay? A great.
2: Day. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. So, Scott, when we were talking about public, public plant, that would be a, that would be a contract, I would assume, right? Okay. Uh um,
3: Scott's
1: there with his truck. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Same thing to get all these balls pumped up and stayed explosion. Yeah. yeah, I, I there's expect, various contractors that right. can pump it out. It's like pumping your septic
11: tank. Right? right, right. It'd
1: be a nice right. contract to have.
11: And and there's uh, there's you know what he was talking about at the bottom of the tank, but it also seemed like there was another byproduct.
10: So we have biosolids, which that's what we dispose of at the And yes, it has to be tested. Uh, you don't have to get it tested as ACC; they approve it, and then you can dispose of it at their landfill. There is another component of the inorganics uh, that you know, you collect with the bar, through the bar screening, or not. But, but I, we don't have; we have not had issues at uh, Miller um, landfill disposing you know, yeah. of them, all our
7: material. Have you checked um, with Eagle County and? Signific- significant difference in price or- I have not,
2: no. So if possible, avoiding a loan is nice on if we can figure out how to leverage grants. So Water Power Authority is great to work with, but it's all get you in the door, match a little bit of a grant and get you into the uh, cycle. It's way easier than USDA, um, which it's amazing. I've never actually had the USDA Get a project happening. It's always been funding, and then <laughs> you get stuck on something. Or at one point, they wouldn't fund a project in the 500-year floodplain, which almost every wastewater plant, except in upperland could be be funded in that. But that's nice to hear. But water power is great. But if we can find some alternative routes, that would be helpful. Looks like she has us to the pond. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to scale. I'm
10: driving <laughs> but that's only my wastewater yeah, but We have. Lots of other projects that you know are trying to provide more water to the upper system or redundancy because we don't have redundancy in the system. If one, we have one tank that feeds an area that tank goes bad, then we have no redundancy. Sounds like a hey. upper yeah. system. Well, till, till you guys came in the department, right? Yes, that was yes. redundancy. That was, that was the redundancy. redundancy, yes. So we have to have redundancy both for water and wastewater. So, um. So, I have lots of other projects that are going to be coming up next year for water. And those I don't have funding, but hopefully there will be. Um, like Adam said, there is a coach, uh, CDPHE, that will be emailing you and telling you there is this funding available. Um, and you also have to be proactive and just kind of be on it. So, your tank probably needs maintenance, it? Our tank needs maintenance. Yeah. We actually have divers on it, too see if we can find some parts that have Mike, we have a collector that spins around and just trying to bring the digested biosolids into one place so we can reuse them as for bugs and um it it failed the other day but we couldn't find parts so actually we had a guy from the mine make us a part he's a machinist
2: have you looked on ebay
10: we looked (laughs) everywhere ebay everywhere
2: we ran into that same thing in aging. We found parts on eBay, <laughs> but that also made us knew that we better get this. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thank you. you
11: need to know.
0: Yeah, I think I you know. Yeah. Let me know. Yeah, Whatever. Sure. <laughs> okay, anytime. Okay. okay.